So would you rather have a good process with bad results or a bad process with good results? I'll ask Mike Curland about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 19th. It's show number 17 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have a two-part feature expert interview with Mike Curlin from Gaining the Edge, The Athletic, and the Bases Loaded podcast. In part one, we'll discuss how he tracks lineups and touch on the Mets, Arizona, San Diego, Tampa, Toronto, Texas, and a couple of other teams. And then later on in part two, Mike and I will talk about his processes for lineup analysis, player analysis, and fab analysis. We'll also have our weekly fantasy news update with Chris Olson, team playing time analyst at BaseballHQ.com, looking at American League hitter news, including Jorge Mateo and Corey Seager. We'll have American League pitcher news, including bullpens in New York, Boston, and Tampa. Then we'll have the National League hitter news, including the Giants infield and the splendid upside of Los Angeles catcher Will Smith. And we'll close her out with National League pitcher news, including Hunter Green and the Dodgers rotation. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the guys at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon looks at some top Orioles prospects. In the Frequent Flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Minnesota shortstop Royce Lewis. And in Extra Innings, I'll be talking about opportunities in St. Louis. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday full edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Mike Curland from Gaining the Edge, The Athletic, and the Bases Loaded podcast. Mike, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the first time. Thanks for having me, Patrick. This was uh, this one of those podcasts I've been listening to for a long time, and it's kind of, you know, it's, it's weird to make my rounds on these podcasts, and it's nice to finally get a chance to meet you and talk to you on this, on this platform. Well, how, how did you get started in fantasy baseball? One day I found myself arguing with myself over like over, I was arguing with a podcast and I'm like, wait a minute, if I don't agree, I, I have opinions. And on top of that, I'm very much one to talk and just put stuff out there. I decided to just randomly start a podcast one day. And one, one thing led to another, I decided, I realized podcasting wasn't the best way to get noticed. I started writing and five years later, here we are. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's one of those things where it started with just this concept of, I felt strongly in my beliefs of player analysis wasn't the best player initially i've become a lot better of a player but it's because i started with this idea of just loving the game really finding it finding it fun to play and uh i started when i started pushing back to my favorite analysts is when i realized okay maybe there's more to it and i and i always enjoyed the idea of creating content and just putting my thoughts out there in a space and one thing led to another and it was just that simple but yeah it's one of those things where it was like 2018 2019 when i decided to do it and uh stuck with it ever since it's been a lot of fun how many drafts are you playing this year and how are your teams doing? 
It's it's actually really funny because I'm doing. I think I think I counted ten drafts, and uh, I can count the ten. I know, shocker, right? <laughs> I counted. I think it was ten drafts, and uh, it's weird. Uh, if you look, I, I start early. I'm a degenerate. I'm drafting as early as November just to get the juices flowing, and um, so I have teams from November through about the first of January, and those teams are all all but one of them are like bottom five in the league, and these are 15 team leagues. I play almost exclusively NFBC these days, which is becoming kind of a trend within the industry. You talk, you hear a lot of NFBC players, a lot of people talking NFBC. So that's where I play. I do mostly draft and holds or draft champions, which are like draft and holds 50 rounds, 15 teamers, 750 players are drafted. But uh, so three, those leagues, those four or five leagues I started off early in they're they're just bottom five in the league. And then from like, February 1st forward, those teams are all top five in the league. So there's a complete, there's an obvious transition there in terms of a, my player analysis was obviously getting better. B, a uh, lot less injuries now because maybe a maybe the injuries happened after I started drafting those later teams, or maybe I started avoiding certain players for certain reasons. Prices adjusted. You know how that goes as the draft season goes along. So uh, there's a there's a clear cut point of when I started drafting good and when I was drafting bad. And right now it's a legitimate like 50 50 of like how good some teams are and how bad some teams are. And it's there's it's it's extremes. There's no middle teams. It's either I'm top five or bottom five legitimately at this point. I don't play that many leagues anymore, but uh, I remember when I did, one of the things that I noticed was if I had really bad early drafts, I would usually have really good later ones because I try not to get the same players on all my teams. I know some guys are the opposite. You you know, you know really feel strongly about a guy, you want him on all 20 of your teams if you can get him. But I've, I'm a spread the risk kind of guy, not just on a particular roster, but across my rosters. And so if I had a, like I said, if I had a, a, a weak team set up in the, uh, in the early going, I tended to have a better one because I just didn't draft those same bad players in the later going and vice versa. You know, if I had good early drafts, I tended to have not so good later drafts, but I cut that way down on the drafts. Anyway, I think I'm down to three and that, that, that about suits me. And there, I do have a lot of players in common. Uh, what do you have a lot of players in common? Uh, like you mentioned, it kind of comes in waves. Like there's players like at certain costs early on that as their cost creeps up, maybe I get a little out on them and I'll jump into a new group of players. And I'm realizing like my late, my earlier drafts, I was really in on Eloy. He was going around pick 90. He was starting to creep around pick 60. I think I was taking him there still. And then people just kept going higher and higher. And as much as I liked Eloy, which again, he, he got that he has a appendectomy. I believe he had, I, I think Spore was talking about, it, it was just one of those we know he's injury prone, but come on, that's above <laughs> injury prone at this point. So it was like, I was really on Eloy and Newt Bar. I was getting them. Uh, and then after that, that shift, their, their prices kind of went up. So as the market shifted, I kind of went a different way. So I was like, all right. And so I had, a, I have a lot of, uh, Josh Young, a, a lot of Matt Chapman on my later teams, which explains why they're doing better because of how hot those guys started. Um, uh, Jesus Lazardo is another main target of mine towards the last few drafts. And Kevin Gosman, I made sure because I was really high on him, but I didn't realize a lot of it was I also drafted those early teams before I got my, you know, SGP sheets and all those, you know, you start incorporating all these uh, projections. Projections were uh, a big part of what, you know, I took my early assessments, incorporated projections, and I realized, okay, the, the projections say I was a little low on this guy. I would double check my work. All right, maybe I was a little low. Uh, I realized the weakness in my analysis was probably projecting runs in RBI without having a projection system in place to help with that. Cause you can look at a skill set, project and look at a player and understand, okay, this guy's good for power. This guy's good for speed. This you can put them in buckets. So I had my buckets. My buckets weren't really wrong. It was a matter of understanding, okay, just because this guy has this skill set, these counting stats are going to be way worse because of team context or bad or plate appearances or spot and lineup. So I would shift my opinion. Okay, maybe I'm a little too high on this guy. Maybe I should start targeting this guy a little later. Very so and so you start 
realizing how the market's shifting and where you can find very similar skill sets among players you like based on projections. And I think that's what kind of led me down a different path. And, and obviously, I'm not, I've never been a huge projection guy. I'll tell, I'll be the first one to admit that. But when you start, when I see the difference in my teams in terms of when I had no projections to when I started incorporating them, obviously they are helpful. And that's because as somebody who was very biased against them leading up in, even into this year as a, just not realizing how useful they can be, not because I rely on them. I don't rely on them heavily, but I've made them part of the tool bot, the tool bag that we all have as fantasy players these days and realizing, yeah, I probably should have started doing this sooner just because it really does put a lot of things in perspective. Yeah, it does. Especially, uh, I, I especially like to know what the forecasts are for playing time because it's something that I just don't have time to look through on a roster by roster basis. So, you know, you grab up three or four sets of projections and see what the common elements are. 650 plate appearances is a lot better than 500 is a lot better than 350. Even if the skills look like they're better on the 350 guy, there's no substitute for just being in the lineup as what has happened this year in baseball or in fantasy baseball, Mike, that you think has created opportunities for fantasy managers for the rest of the season? I, I think, I mean, I think it's the, it's the elephant in the room. It's the injuries, you know, injuries are piling up, uh, over uh, underperformance by a lot of guys we expected better from. I think that's kind of presented its biggest, uh, it, it's been the biggest thing to overcome in terms of as a player, but also creating more, like players to pick up off the waiver wire that have potential to be difference makers for fantasy because of injuries to real life teams, not just fantasy teams you have or underperformance from starters. You have guys like Logan Allen, uh, Tanner Bybee, uh, Bryce Miller. You have these guys and it's like, it's like once a week you're getting, it's wild that we're getting like one, maybe two a week if we're lucky. And every week there's a dynamic player added to the player pool that allows a player to kind of try to make up lost ground, uh, to try to uh, fix a, a hole in their, in their roster, or maybe you're already good in pitching and you're adding a strength to what's already a strength for you, giving you the upper hand rest of season. So I think the amount of call-ups we're getting due to one reason or another would rather be a player, you know, just teams have room for them, injuries, whatever. I think that's been a huge, I think it's been one of the biggest uh, things in terms of like a, uh, what's changed the landscape of fantasy early on this season. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Kurland from Gaining the Edge and The Athletic doing lineup analysis there. We'll talk about that right now. A Bases Loaded podcast comes out and you have a very high volume Twitter feed at Mike underscore Kurland and that's Kurland with a U, K-U-R-L-A-N-D. Mike, you were a guest on the Benched with Bubba pod and you guys were talking about line, lineup analysis, which is kind of your forte. It's also called lineup tracking, I guess. And it appears to be kind of an underserved niche still. I think you're in on the ground floor of it. What do you do when you're doing lineup tracking? I So it started back in 2020 in terms of just why I found this to be important because with 2020, we had COVID, right? So with COVID, not only do we have crazy season and schedules, but then you had what well, a new guy just all out with COVID leave every other day felt like. So every other day, a new player's getting plugged in, a new player's out. And it's like, how do you keep up with this? And I realized right then and there, it's kind of very important to be able to be like, hey, this guy's you know, on leave for like a week. So this guy's playing. Oh, I have him in, a, in one of these draft champions formats. I can plug him in because I need, you know, I have, a, I have an injury or so I'm like, wow. And then teams just in general, ever since, even before then, but it was kind of what brought me into this whole just covering it. And I'm like, so now the game has changed. You know, you, you we talked, we talked about how openers have affected the game. We've talked about how teams are going very uh, relief pitcher heavy, especially like if you, if they have the, the players to do so, you just have, 
players are more high leverage, less legitimate closers, et cetera. So now you're seeing offenses almost kind of take this trend of you have lefty specialists, you have righty specialists. This guy moves up against righties, down against lefties. He plays every day against righties. He obviously platoons now. So it's like play, play. And you're seeing projections having a hard time giving plate appearance numbers because that's hard to determine. Okay, so the guy's going to play 30% of his game is batting second, 40 batting fourth. It's almost impossible to come up with a projection in terms of plate appearances these days. So that's why it's like, especially for when she gets those middle later round guys where <laughs> you're trying to really pinpoint like how, where I can get this edge. And that's where you come, this was where a lot of tracking has kind of guided me and why I think it's a very important part of analysis. And you're seeing guys in this industry um doing it really well i know uh, zimmerman does it for fan graphs uh, rob di pietro does it on his patreon as well along with other stuff though i know these are two guys that i know you guys have uh, greg jewett helping on that front as well covering it weekly i believe in, in in a different manner but uh the way i do it the reason why i think it's very important the way i do it and, um, and why it's helpful is because i try to make sure i cover all 30 teams i go i, I discuss playing time trending up and down I watch for players entering and exiting platoons. I'm looking every day at who's getting pinch hit for. Of course, injuries. You want to know who's injured and how long they're out for. So now you have an idea of how this team manages players, how this team's um, managing injuries, who's likely to get the playing time. And being able to stay ahead on top of the stuff really does provide one of the few edges left because that's where the game is going. It's a lot, but I think it's very, very important to be on top of at the end of the day. Yeah, and I think it's going to be whatever value it has currently because not enough people are doing it in time. Everybody will be doing it and the information edge will be lost and we'll all be running around trying to find some other edge. <laughs> I noticed though that you said on the Bubba pod that you were starting to add in some StatCast information from BaseballSavant.com and goodness knows they have a lot of information there, but how do you decide what's relevant for your users and applicable for what you're trying to do? So it kind of goes back into like, you're looking at every little thing, trying to turn over every, trying to leave no stone unturned. And StatCast data is just that next level of doing so. And the reason why I think it could be helpful, it goes back with trying to catch hot streaks. I, I can see a guy, okay, this guy went over four. Okay, now he's over eight the last two days, but he's made, he's had four or five hard hit, uh, hard hit batted balls. I like to think that maybe you're catching his good contact. That's going to turn into something. You don't just keep hit, you don't you can't be consistently hitting the ball hard and go over three over four every night. So I'm trying to catch that in real time as well. But you do again. You're just looking for every little nook and cranny to try to give yourself an idea of what could be going on at any given moment for a player, good or bad. And by you doing it, I think what happens is that the knowledge gets concentrated, which makes it easier for other people to absorb. It's just such a time-consuming thing that it makes more sense for somebody like you to put in the time and then charge people a little bit of money to, to not have to do it themselves and to take the concentrated information and make decisions with it rather than painstakingly go through it, each of us as an individual. And I was reading your lineup analysis over at Patreon. If you're looking for that, by the way, search GTE Fan. Fantasy. That's how I found it on patreon.com. And uh, you talked about it a little bit on your Twitter feed. You gave a free link so that people could check it out. And in your notes on the Brewers, you said Jesse Winker has been awful and could be losing plate appearances because he'll drop in the batting order. So what happens if Winker continues to underperform? How much rope are they going to give him? And what can we as fantasy managers do with that information? He has, I think it was a 350 OBP when I looked this morning. That's what's keeping him there, but everything else is dreadful. I mean, it is what it is. He hasn't regained form since his Reds days. And even then, that was like a small sample injury. Uh, injuries caused issues there. But I'm just kind of forecasting it because this is one of those teams where they platoon 
rather willingly. And he's already in a platoon. So right there, Winger's already losing play appearances because he's in a platoon. Now, I don't see them keeping him batting second when they can easily shift him down and just move everybody up one. Or if a player takes off and starts really proving themselves like a Bryce Terang, like a Sal Freel that comes up and does it. If Joey Weimer gets going, you ha- they have options and I feel like the I feel like the Brewers aren't going to just keep trotting out there batting second, considering I've seen them be more willing to move players off spots than than other teams, and that's kind of just a forecast thought, considering what's going on with him right now. And it's a really important thing. I mean, if he goes from second to sixth, what is it? Twenty plate appearances per lineup spot lost over a season. And so if you go down five spots, all of a sudden that's a hundred less plate appearances, prorated for the part of the year you're in. But it's still yeah. sixty or seventy. That's a lot. In New York, the Mets fans and many fantasy managers, Mike, were pretty concerned coming out of spring training that the club needed to activate prospects, third baseman Brett Beatty and catcher Francisco Alvarez. The Mets did just that and uh, hasn't been quite the fantasy bonanza we might have been led to believe. What's your thoughts on Beatty and Alvarez? So Beatty, I have a lot more confidence in coming around compared to Alvarez. With Beatty, the strong plate discipline is there, double-digit walk rate, sub-20% K rate. That's stuff that you really like to see in a young player, you know, has a good control of the zone. The contact rates aren't absurdly low. It's not something I'm overly concerned about with Beatty, but something that I did notice when I looked into him a little bit. But Beatty hits the ball really hard, 52.5% hard hit rate. Barrel's okay, eight, about 8%, a little over 8%, and, you know, that's pushing right around league average. The big problem with Beatty is the ground ball rate, a 49.2% ground ball rate. The best way to generate power is obviously elevating the ball, and unfortunately, when it comes to Beatty, as of right now, his pulled ground ball rate is 65.4%. If he was able to at least elevate to the pull side, the power would play up more. And then you have uh, Francisco Alvarez, who the power is not really a question, but the Ks have been a concern, and he's near he's nearing, what, 30% again? And another issue, another guy with ground ball issues, 57% ground ball rate, basically. And anybody who's hitting the ball on the ground that much, again, that's going to be a huge issue and the power won't be able to play up. And with Alvarez, he's not making a ton of hard contact and barreling. So there's a difference, like the big difference, at least with Beatty, you have that those hard hit rates and decent barrel. Meanwhile, you're having Francisco Alvarez not even making that quality of contact you really want with a player. Not to mention, like, really bad, like, worse than league average swinging strike rates. Um, his contact rates are really low. I think among uh, among players with at least 50 play appearances this season, uh, Alvarez had the second lowest zone contact rate and the 10th lowest overall contact rate to give you an idea of how how little contact Alvarez is making right now. So you're lacking the contact rates while also having the swing and miss in the approach. I don't understand. I don't see how he's going to stay up. And I know what's his face. Narvaez just went on a rehab or he's about to start a rehab, it sounds like. So I think when you take all this into, into th- thinking about these players without, between Alvarez and and Beatty, you realize maybe these teams knew what they were doing after all. You know, we question these teams like, why are they doing this? Well, when you see the players come out and produce the way they have, maybe that's why. And Beatty looked great in the minors, but Alvarez really didn't. It was more of a need-based acquisition, or you know, they called him up based on a need more than a want. And Alvarez might need more seasoning. I think Beatty is more likely to figure out of the two, just considering the profiles when you dive in. In San Diego, you noted that the lineup is very stable. It is what it is, you said, for now, except that Jake Cronenworth, who was spending a little bit of time in the two-hole, well, he's back to hitting fifth. How confident are you in the San Diego lineup and that it is what it's going to stay? Well, and that's as soon as as soon as I made those notes, it was like two straight. He went back to batting fifth, and then now he's back to batting second. So, like as soon as I mentioned that they're, they're putting him back, they put him right back again. And it's one of those things. So, I guess I obviously have no confidance there, just one, uh, in terms of his position. But the good news for Cronenworth is that a top five spot seems likely right now. I don't see a lot of options for them to change it otherwise. And 
Cronenworth, his OBP, I think it was another guy with just really strong on base numbers over the last couple of weeks. And overall, that should keep him batting second in this lineup, especially because you have like guys like Machado struggling and right now actually injured. I think these guys are going to stay where they're at unless somebody really gets going. Like if Carpenter gets going, that's a lefty. They can slot. Maybe they want a lefty in the two spot. Maybe they'll move him up and put Cronenworth back to fifth. Or if um, Trent Grisham gets going again, which we've seen him come and go, but it's been a couple of years since he's been consistent. It feels like Grisham's a guy that could easily push his way up, but I think it's going to take a period of production. It's not going to be a hot week. It's going to take multiple weeks of being consistent before we see any big changes. Cause if one, if we've seen one thing with this lineup, Good portion of the year, they've been rather consistent with the top five to six in that lineup overall over there in San Diego. In your discussion of San Francisco players, you talked about first baseman Lamont Wade, who looks like a reinvented version of himself, but it's had a lot of luck in it, 20% home run per fly ball rate. And some of his favorable metrics are really big increases from past performance just as early as last year. Uh, 19% walk rate uh, this year, 10% last year. As Woba this year, 415 last year, 298. Mike, in general, how much credence do you put on a player whose performance has just skyrocketed in the way that Lamont Wades has? Lamont Wades shown glimpses in the past if you look at 2021 he had 18 home runs so the power was not nothing you know 220 229 iso uh with a you know well both within uh, both 343 and 347 so obviously he earned that output hit 253 the, the walks weren't there right but then last year the walks were there more and the strikeouts went down and this year it's almost like he's marrying the two he's, he has the power right now the iso being 235 but then the good play approach with the K's and walks, which is similar to 2022. I think there's a player between these two extremes of last year and this year that's probably closer to 2021. But I do think you have to take it with a grain of salt because we're still only 25% of the season left. He can easily have a terrible second half and completely prove, prove me wrong. And my, But my early assessment is that a lot of what he's doing is earned. So Wade, specifically in this situation, I'm buying more into than most. But in general, when it comes to hot starts, problem is is a month month and a half isn't the sample size you need so you have to you have to you either have to be patient or reactive and there's no in between after once you already acquire them of course tampa story of the year mike other than pitcher injuries which looks like an episode of mash or er or something (laughs) but on the offensive side yandy diaz has looked terrific through his first 168 plate appearances uh, 321, he's got a 429 on base percentage, which was leading the league the last time I looked. 10 homers, 24 RBIs, 33 runs scored. Just a great season for Yandy Diaz, but he was playing through a sore groin, and then he slipped, and then he tweaked it some more. He could be headed to the IL. So now here's a lineup question. If Diaz is out for any length of time, what's going to happen in that Tampa lineup, and should we go into watch mode on Kyle Manzardo? I mean, yeah, if uh, Manzardo should already be up, but it's also the Rays. And uh, so that's part of the issue, right? And we, so we've had two, and here's, this is when we start monitoring these lineups. We had two lineups now. We had Harold Ramirez uh, leading off playing first base yesterday, but he also got pinch hit for from Paredes. And now today he's out of the lineup. So already it looks like Isak Paredes might get more of that run. Paredes kind of being up and down against righties. Going back to last year, right now he's kind of swinging a hot bat. And tonight, Paredes is actually playing first base, which is that's who came in for uh, Ramirez yesterday via pinch hit. But yeah, right now, short term, I'm going to say Isak Paredes is the big winner here in terms of because he was a guy that's been playing like every three out of every five against righties. And now he can now there's no reason that he just doesn't play every day. And he's right now he's already slotted in the first base today as we speak. So it looks like he's part of the plan there. 
In Toronto, this year's tout darling Alejandro Kirk has lost a ton of playing time to the point where I watch a fair amount of Jays games because my wife's a fan, and I don't remember the last time I saw Alejandro Kirk doing anything other than maybe a pinch-hitting appearance here and there. What's going on? So he's another guy that's kind of just not performing to expectation, and but there was always concerns with what to expect here from Kirk in terms of the power. I think the hit tool is legitimate. I think the contact rates are great. Like he's able to, that's part of his skill, but with the DH being held up by guys like Brandon bell, or they want to give George Springer a day off Kirk's playing like every other day, three out of the last five has been for Jansen. I think those guys are almost splitting time. Like they each play three out of six. It seems like for the most part, but that's not what you signed up for with Kirk. You were expecting the bat to play. Part of the issue with Kirk is that he, he's another guy, just a ground ball merchant. He just, that's all he does. He hits ground balls and he has power, but he doesn't tap into it because he's putting the ball on the ground too much and he doesn't pull the ball at all. He's more of an all fields guy. So Kirk, that's, that's kind of what you want in, in a catcher with that type of hit tool. Obviously you'll take the good batting average, but he's not even giving you that right now. And if the playing appearances aren't there, what, how good is he really for fantasy purposes? And finally, you were talking about Texas on the bases loaded pod. And one of the guys you discussed, talk about pleasant surprises behind the plate. Unlike uh, Alejandro Kirk, uh, Jonah Heim has been doing really well. What's your analysis of his future for the rest of this season? So I'm sure anybody who rostered Heim last year remembers how good he was in that first half. And Heim, I think he was one of those guys that were actually set to do better if once the shift was banned and everything, because as the switch hitter he is, that was like the side that he was most affected. But uh, right now with Heim, you're seeing it kind of all come together. You're seeing he's almost doubled his career, his previous career high barrel rate. He's hitting the ball harder than ever, and it kind of goes hand in hand. The home run to fly ball rate is only 13%. But he's but the fly balls are forty three point eight percent, so he's hitting the ball in the air plenty. The ground ball rate is low, and it's always been a strength of his. Right now, it's only thirty percent. So Heim is keeping the ball elevated. He's pulling the ball a ton. He's pulling the ball in the air, which that's if you haven't noticed, that's a thing I really look at a lot for hitters, just to see how much that power can play up. And as long as he's hitting the ball to the pull side in the air as much as he is, Heim's gonna produce that power and he's still doing so while keeping a 90% Z contact rate, which is zone contact. So Heim is a guy that makes a lot of contact in the zone where it matters while being able to elevate the ball more and to the pull side at that. I think there's a lot of reasons to buy into what we're seeing here with Jonah Heim. And you said there's another guy in Texas who might provide some useful plate appearances from a veteran source. Yeah, there was Robbie Grossman who's been, um, surprisingly good but it's like it comes and goes like he was good to start the year kind of fell into like a weird playing time situation and he's been good again of late and then so it's like one of those things where you can kind of ride the wave there but as long as he's starting that's helpful in your deeper formats a guy i like even more though is ezekiel duran and i think it's just because duran gives you that power that speed and he's been playing very well in Seager's absence. Seager is returning, but there's a clear spot at DH to be filled here. Now, is Duran this good? Absolutely not. But when a guy has six home runs, two stolen bases, and hitting 292 with what was the OPS? The OPS is 817. You got to give him a look. So these are a couple guys that like you're looking for value on teams that maybe you didn't think would have them and way and ways of getting value on your team from like unexpected sources. And these guys are both giving that to you. And right now in a day and age where I think plate appearances are king right now, and you're getting them from these guys and they're both providing at least quality in the, in the short term. Well, Mike, this has been super interesting so far and full of information. Uh, let's take a break. Then we'll finish our discussion a little later on. Sounds great. Mike Curland writes for gaining the edge and the athletic and the bases loaded podcast. 
He'll be back later on to talk about his processes for lineup analysis, player analysis, and fab analysis. And coming up next, we have our Market Watch Player News Reports with Chris Olson next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Facts and Fluke Spotlight, analyst Greg Pyron takes the deep view of Philadelphia outfielder Brandon Marsh. The Facts and Fluke Spotlight is just another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly news review and update. And here with the latest is Chris Olson, team playing time analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back, Patrick. Great to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, let's start in the American League with some hitters. Uh, in his playing time tomorrow coverage of the five teams in the American League West, Jock Thompson noted that veteran all-rounder Tony Kemp in Oakland has been gathering a lot of splinters lately as the team sifts through its options at second base and in the outfield. And apparently the, the uh, Oakland management is finding options it likes more than it likes Tony Kemp. What's the story there? Well, I mean, you know, it, it, obviously the, the first thing to note about Oakland is that they're historically um, bad. They're on pace, I think, to win under 40 games, and uh, hopefully they don't suffer that uh, indignity. And I think Tony Kemp is actually part of sort of a larger picture where it's, you know, they knew that they were rebuilding there in Oakland, and uh, so they brought in guys like Tony Kemp and Jesus Aguilar and Alenmus Diaz, and I think the theory there was, well, you know, we'll, we'll put at least some credible major leaguers uh, on the field and, and maybe win a few games and keep our fans, <laughs> the few that are left, uh, you know, remotely interested. And, uh, you know, between guys like Kemp, who has a, you know, 481 OPS um, through, uh, you know, his, his uh, play so far and just the fact that, you know that that theory of of guys guys like Aguilar and and uh, Diaz and and Kemp making them a credible franchise hasn't worked out. I think it, it's clearly time to you know put the youth movement in uh, into high gear. And you know the interesting part about that is that you know at least a couple of these guys are um, are rising to the challenge. You know you've got uh, JJ Blade, the you know who was a much heralded prospect. Uh, you know, coming over from the National League and, and uh, you know, sort of, see, you know, in the early going seems to be seizing the opportunity he has. Uh, Estori Ruiz um, has hit, you know, we knew he was going to run, but he's uh, hitting far better than I think a lot of people imagined he would. Um, Ryan noticed batting average is low, but, you know, he, he is flashing some power now and then. Um, Jordan Diaz has taken over second base. You know, and he's not even 23 years old yet. So I, you know, I, I guess the short answer is that the youth movement is on in full force in uh, in Oakland. And uh, you know, some of these guys, if they have any trade value, maybe they'll find them new homes. Um, you know, a guy like Tony Kemp seems like a guy that could uh, be designated for assignment. You also have Brent Rooker and uh, Seth Brown's on the IL right now, but another couple of young players who are showing some offensive pop. And it the the one shame of it is as these guys round into shape, and this is only on the hitting side, we should say that the pitching in Oakland has been nothing short of 
a hot flaming mess, but, and that's going to be a real problem as they try to get up to the, you know, the 60 win total that we kind of always assume. And there's a saying that every team wins 60, every team loses 60, and, and it's the 40 in between that separate the playoff teams from the others. But uh, Oakland's going to be hard pressed, as you say, but Brent Rooker, Seth Brown, another couple of guys who can hit. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm glad you filled in the gap there with Brent Rooker. I mean, how could I have uh, left him out of there? I mean, the power has been just unbelievable. And, uh, you know, every time we think, oh, maybe he won't keep it up, uh, you know, he's kept it up so far and, the, and the, you know, the skills look good. And, uh, you know, I actually saw someone on Twitter the other day saying, hey, what, you know, his, his odds of winning the uh, – American League home run title, uh, you know, at, at one of the, uh, you know, increasingly legal gambling houses out there were, was, uh, you know, were, uh, you know, sort of through the roof. And they said, you know, hey, why not throw a few bucks on on Brent Rooker to uh, lead the American League in home runs? Of course, you got to contend with guys like Aaron Judge and no one suspects that he'll keep things up at that pace. But uh, but the power uh, has looked really good. Um, and he has, uh, you know, not you know, he's a right handed hitter. Uh, but he, uh, you know, is handling right-handed pitching just fine. He's, you know, he may have had some days in the past where he was a short side platoon guy, but, uh, you know, at, at the age of 28, he's sort of seizing, uh, the opportunity to get full-time run. You know, that's an interesting thing. The, the age we have the baseball HQ, I don't know if you call it a mantra exactly, but uh, we call it the 10 step path to stardom for, for the big prospects. And it's named after Alex Rodriguez who struggled and then came into his own. I don't think this is a case like that. I don't think Rooker was ever that big of a prospect, but there is a sort of a bias in major league baseball organizations. I think, I think to young players and guys like Rooker can slip through the cracks of some organizations because they look at him at age 26 or whatever, and he's not really doing that much. And they just say, well, he'll, he'll never do anything. And then a couple of years later or a year later, he figures things out because some guys just figure things out in their lives a little later than others. I'm a perfect example of that myself, <laughs> having been something of a vagabond until I you know, started applying myself. And I think the same thing is true of lots of sports guys. So I think from that point of view, Rooker, who's to say he might not, he'll have a shorter career, of course, having started this late, but who's to say he hasn't just come into his own, hasn't figured out his physical performance, hasn't figured out the mental approach. Uh, maturity brings with it some benefits. Oh, definitely. And, and then, you know, another thing you have to factor in is, uh, is the situation, right? Sometimes all, you know, all these guys are really talented and sometimes all they need is, you know, a true opportunity and, you know, I know Rooker came up through the Twins organization and, you know, and they're still going through it now where, you know, I think they and fantasy managers alike always had had, uh, you know, this, uh, you know, conundrum of, of you know, th they seem to have, you know, a bunch of different uh, outfield prospects who uh, were roughly on the same level. And, and then, you know, a guy like Brent Rooker, who's, like I said, a right handed hitter. Sometimes he gets the short end of the stick just based on uh, handedness and so forth. And, and um, you know, now, you know, he, he uh, as much as it, you know, must stink on some level to, to lose all the time in Oakland, at least he knows he's going to be on the lineup card um, every day. And, and clearly he's uh, gotten himself into a pretty nice groove so far. The youth movement in Oakland uh, raises the question, of course, of prospects in the organization. And are there any we should be aware of on that score? 
Well, I mean, I guess the one that we haven't mentioned so far might be um, Tyler Soderstrom, who, um, you know, is a catcher, first baseman, uh, not on the 40-man roster. And a lot of times that, um, especially when a team like Oakland is kind of hoarding um, players and hoping to find some diamonds in the rough, sometimes that's a factor. Uh, but he shot up three levels last season, started this year at AAA. He's got an 843 OPS, eight home runs, and 158 plate appearances. Trenton Brooks came over from Cleveland, seven home runs, OPS over 1,000. Of course, you always have to discount some of those because it is the PCL, and uh, people put up sort of video game numbers there. Another outfielder, Cody Thomas, 945 OPS. Seems like at some point a lot of these guys are going to get their shot there in Oakland, even if it's maybe the second half of the year after the trade deadline. You know, maybe they find a new home for Ramon Laureano, and uh, some of these other guys can start to to work into the mix. Interestingly, you mentioned um, Trenton Brooks is having a great season, and of course he's playing in Las Vegas. So if he comes up next year, he'll be joining the Oakland A's in Las Vegas, where he came from, and playing in the same stadium, because I guess that stadium's going to be two or three years in the coming. Um, let's move on. Jorge Mateo in Baltimore got out of the gate, and he looked like a horse on fire, but he has cooled off a lot in May. Corbin Young looked at Mateo in his Facts and Flukes column this week. What was Corbin Young's take on uh, Jorge Mateo? Yeah, so, I mean, Mateo's an interesting guy, right? But I think even going back to the baseball forecaster, you know, we were already sort of sounding a, a little bit of a cautionary note on Mateo where we had some, uh, you know, concerns about his plate skills and, and basically counseled people to, you know, as tantalizing as his uh, stolen base tolls were not to put all your eggs in, in his basket in terms of uh, your speed needs. And, uh, and then of course he came in the first month of the season and, you know, seemed intent on, uh, you know, basically saying to us, what were you worried about? You know, I'm a new guy. I, I uh, have these amazing plate skills now and, and so forth. And that was April. Uh, but like you say, May has been uh, pretty dreadful as batting averages right down around a hundred. Um, the barrels have gone away. Um, and now, um, you know, at least on the roster, there's another option for, for Baltimore in Joey Ortiz, who is, uh, you know, as I've written about in playing time tomorrow, like one of uh, a triumvirate of middle infield prospects that, uh, that Baltimore has, um, you know, the bottom line is that, um, you know, Mateo does is able to stay on the field a bit because of his defense. Uh, but, you know, it's sort of an open question as to, uh, you know, if, if that April proves to be a mirage and, you know, his plate skills go back to what, you know, gave us the concern, uh, you know, at the end of last year, uh, Baltimore has no shortage of options to, uh, to kind of move on down the line and, um, you know, maybe move him to uh, a bench role. Um, you know, he could still be maybe useful as a defensive replacement or pinch runner. Um, but, uh, you know, you may find somebody more interesting to play shortstop there eventually. I have Mateo on my Tout Wars roster. I got him for $7 in the auction, which I thought was absurd because I thought the bags alone are going to be worth 20 bucks. That's what happened last year. And he'll hit a few home runs, that kind of thing. And then he comes out of the gate, as I said, in May, gosh, he, he, he looked like a completely different player. He had, he had 
brought his str- strikeout rate down from 30 plus percent to 14 or something like that. His walk rate stayed at about seven or eight percent. So he was getting on base and he was putting the ball in play an absolute ton, Chris, pulling it on the ground. It looked like a deliberate effort to pull the ball on the ground. And perhaps that's to take advantage of the absence of the shift. But I think also somebody must have told him, you know what you can't do? You can't hit for power. You know what you can do? You can run. And you should be putting the ball on the ground as often as you can. And his line drive plus ground ball rate in April, I think, was up around 65% combined. He was only hitting 35% fly balls. Then in May, 50% fly balls, no line drives to speak of. And his ground balls were down 20% or something like that. And he's making outs because he's one of those kind of guys when he's hitting fly balls, there's more cans of corn than the Jolly Green Giant. And he needs not to do that. And for some reason, he he started doing that again. The one bright side, I think, for him is that he's a tremendous defender, still a sort of 80th percentile in outs above average. And of course, he's so fast. Now, you mentioned Joey Ortiz, who's already clipped a little bit of Mateo's playing time, but uh, they had two other options, you said. I know one of them is Jackson Holiday, who's still in, I think, high A, so he seems relatively unlikely to make it to the big leagues this year. Not so much for Jordan Westberg, who has looked terrific, and he's a triple A. Yeah, yeah, and, and he has been, uh, like you say, amazing at triple A. You know, 12 home runs in uh, 161 plate appearances. I think the OPS is up over 900. Um, you know, the, the one thing, as we alluded to with, the, you know, back in our discussion of the Oakland A's, um, you know, really the, the main reason that uh, Ortiz has gotten the first call instead of Westberg is just the fact that he was on the 40-man roster and Westberg is not. Um, you know, but at, at some point, um, you know, this is a Baltimore team that uh, is anxious to reopen, you know, a window of, of contention and so forth. Uh, you know, the uh, Baltimore Sun reported that the GM, Mike Elias, has said that uh, Westberg is, quote, an active topic of conversation. Um, and if a GM is willing to acknowledge that uh, and not sort of, you know, downplay the possibility of, of a call-up, then I think, uh, you know, you have to pay some attention that, uh, you know, I, I mean, it, it speaks well of the organization because Westberg is sort of speaking to the idea that uh, he's got nothing left to prove at AAA. And, um, you know, we all like it when um, a uh, an organization actually uses that instead of other considerations uh, to figure out when to call a guy up. Um, so, you know, if Westberg is ready, um, they can certainly uh, just plug him right in there and see what he can do um, sort of the way that they, uh, you know, did at the end of last year with Gunnar Henderson. Uh, of course, he's been off to a little bit of a slow start this year, but seems to be picking it up a little bit of late. And uh, so, you know, slowly but surely, you know, the, as we all saw kind of building on the horizon, this Baltimore team, you know, between Rutschman and, and Henderson, uh, you know, eventually they're going to, you know, assume, you know, assemble the entire uh you know, machine that they that they want to uh, propel them into the future, and and Westberg, I think, is a part a big part of that. Well, you're a newspaper man, and I used to be a newspaper man, and I think we can both agree that when the GM com- says we're actively considering bringing this guy up, he knows that that's going to start a drumbeat in the media and the sports media in Baltimore, and the longer he waits 
and not doing it is going to cause him more heartburn because they're all going to say, but you said he was coming up, Mike. Why isn't he coming up, Mike? And it's the same phraseology that I think he used in describing how they promoted Kyle Stowers back a little way, uh, a little uh, time ago last fall. And sure enough, Kyle Stowers got called up. So if Ruben Mateo isn't looking over his shoulder, uh, I think he should be. In Texas, Corey Seager has returned to the Texas lineup, speaking of shortstops. But at first, when we thought his injury replacement, Ezekiel Duran, would be losing playing time, that's not going to happen, it looks like, according to Rod Truesdell in Playing Time Tomorrow at BaseballHQ.com. What's the story with Ezekiel Duran? Uh, well, I mean, the the short answer is that, uh, you know, he, he performed um, well enough that, um, you know, that, that he deserves to stay on the field. And, uh, you know, Seager coming off the injury, it sort of makes sense that, uh that they would uh, DH him for a little while, ease him back into the lineup. And, uh, you know, Duran, um, I think, I'm, you know, he started probably, you know, every game, I think, at shortstop since, um, since uh, or pretty close to it, since uh, Seager went down and, uh, you know, hit very well, 815 OPS, plenty of hard contact, power. Um, so, you know, there's no reason to take him out because, uh, you know, the, in Seeger's absence, the DH spot there had been sort of a revolving door, a little bit of, uh, uh Josh Smith and, uh, Sam Huff, who just got sent down to, to bring Seeger back, got some, you know, DH time. And, and so they didn't really have a, a full-time DH there to begin with. And, uh, you know, so between those two guys, Seeger and, and Duran, there's a spot in the lineup for both of them. And, and Duran has, uh, has basically shown that he deserves to stay in the lineup. Robbie Grossman, another guy who could lose some playing time and Brad Miller, who's been mostly DHing. It could be a situation where they want to give all of these guys some playing time, which means all of them are going to lose a roughly equal amount and end up being borderline part-time players. So, uh, Ezekiel Duran sort of played himself onto our mental maps of what goes on in Texas. And it looks like he's going to stay there for the time being. I think the one blemish that was reported in playing time today by Rod Truesdell is he's only got 2% walks. And sometimes that is an indicator that the opposing pitchers are going to figure this guy out. He swings at everything. There's not going to get much to swing at. Yeah, that, that is definitely a concern. That's sometimes a, you know, a, a bit of a precursor, to um you know to a downturn but you know as you say as you said before you know he's making a decent amount of contact 74 percent contact rate which is you know on par with the level he set last year and hitting the ball hard when he when he does and uh you know that that cures a lot of uh you know a lot of sin sometimes and like i said they given the other options uh you know i don't you know, it would it would probably have to take a pretty pronounced um, you know downturn to uh, to to cost him playing time. You know, in the in the foreseeable future. I mean, of, of the guys you mentioned, I think you know Grossman's probably um, the most firmly entrenched. They seem to be starting him in in left field most of the time. But uh, but you know, there's there, there's little reason to you know to give Brad Miller at this stage. We sort of know what Brad Miller is, and and. Uh, you know, and Josh Smith too sort of had a little bit of an opportunity, but uh, didn't wasn't really able to take advantage of it. So, um, you know, I, I, absent sort of a, a nosedive in in other aspects, like I said, the hard contact, 
Um, I, I think uh, Mr. Duran's in, in a pretty good position right now. Let's move on to the American League pitchers, and we'll start in New York, where the Yankees came into the season pretty much set in the bullpen, it looked like, with Clay Holmes closing games and right-hander Michael King in the crowd setting him up. But Holmes had a few duds in a row, and all of a sudden the situation is, well, we can say murkier. Uh, King seemingly at the head of the committee now. Baseball HQ analyst Corbin Young looked at King in this week's Facts and Flukes column. Does Corbin think that Michael King is the new king of the Yankees' bullpen? Uh, well, I mean, on the skills he does, and I'm not going to try to pick a fight with my uh, fellow analyst, but I've, I've sort of looked at this situation and playing time tomorrow a little bit too. Uh, you know, what Corbin is seeing is that, his, you know, his um, – Skills have sort of, you know, King sort of broke out from a skills perspective last year, um, and he's been able to maintain that performance this year, even though, um, you know, his his velocity is a little bit down and so forth. Uh, you know, he when Holmes had some stumbles, he he's filled in a little bit and has gone three for three in his save chances um, so far. He throws, you know, four pitches uh, more than fifteen percent of the time, so he's got a good uh, pitch mix and so forth. Uh, but like I said, that velocity drop has led to at least a few fewer uh, swings and misses. Um, so the the one thing that uh, because he's you know focusing more on the skills than the roles uh, that that Corbin isn't thinking about is that I think. If the Yankees had uh, their preference, they would uh, continue to throw King in uh, multi-inning scenarios, and that would require Clay Holmes to uh, sort of recapture the ninth inning. And um, the main, you know, there's a one main issue with Holmes, and so, and that's that his sinker this year, his sinking fastball, has been far less uh, effective than. Um, it was last year when, when he sort of broke out and took control of that closer role. Um, I think if he can sort of get that turned around, they would pretty much prefer to have, um, you know, Holmes in the ninth and free King up to get five outs or six outs if they need him to. Um, so, you know, right now the split that we have on the site is 40%, 40%, which I guess is sort of just me chickening out in terms of uh, making a definitive call. Um, but I think, you know, it gets at the same thing that Corbin's getting now, which is King's skills maybe look a little bit better right now, uh, but, that you know, you have to inject a little bit of real-world um uh, you know, realism into that and say, well, I, I think the manager's druthers is still to have Holmes pitch the ninth if he can, you know, and, he, and you even see sometimes uh, guys like Wandy Peralta sneak in there into the ninth inning uh, if there's a lefty coming up or whatever. Um, so, you know, to, to stick King in the ninth might be um, giving up, uh, you know, a tactical option that, that they prefer to keep uh, available to them, which is to bring him in for, for more than three outs. I think that's the correct analysis. And part of the reason why is I think Holmes fell into some kind of rut with that sinker, as you said, especially in the second half of April and into early May. Uh, he had six games, five innings only, gave up five earned runs, a whole bunch of base runners, and a 10.28 OPS allowed. In the seven games since that little bad run, he's got a win, three holds, seven base runners, no earned runs in seven and a third with 11 strikeouts and a walk. It seems like he's got his ship back in the water and upright instead of taking on uh, 
taking on water. And I think that they, I agree with you. I think that, that the manager, Aaron Boone, would prefer to have King in that more versatile role where he can kind of mow down four or five guys or six guys in the middle of the lineup to set up the whole latter half of the game in the way that uh, a lot of successful teams have done in the past. And I, I think you're right also that the fact that guys like Peralta and Ian Hamilton are figuring into the, uh, the saves once in a while indicate that they don't think that the saves part of it is as important as the leverage part of it. And if they think that, then the, it makes sense that the best pitcher would get the most leverage opportunities, and they seem to think that that's Michael King, and I can't say that they're wrong. Uh, staying in bullpens and in the American League East, Boston put right-hander John Schreiber on the 15-day IL on Tuesday. He has right lat tightness. Uh, Schreiber had been playing a pretty important role in the Boston bullpen, and I've heard his name mentioned as a possible successor to closer Kenley Jansen when Jansen was having some issues. You covered the story for Playing Time Today, and I presume for Playing Time Tomorrow as well. What's the latest on the Boston bullpen? Yeah, and I you know, cover it in my uh, living room every night when I watch the uh, the Red Sox games too. I mean, it's, um, you know, Schreiber was obviously a, uh, a wonderful, uh, in what was otherwise a very uh, disappointing season, he was one of pretty much one of the uh, most pleasant surprises for the Red Sox last year that he, uh, you know, that uh, Bloom was able to sort of find a, a useful reliever uh, on the scrap heap and, and brought him in and, and um you know, so, uh, but, you know, they, they do have some other options. They, they um, signed Chris Martin, obviously, in the uh, offseason. He spent a little bit of time on the IL, but, um, you know, now he's back and he's kind of rounding back into form. I think he's pretty much your, your primary eighth inning guy. Um, you know, th- another guy who's emerged this year, throwing a little bit harder and, and uh, seeing better results is Josh Winkowski. Um, you know, came over in the uh, the Benintendi deal, um, and uh, you know th- those are sort of your guys that are going to be form the bridge, I think, to um, to Kenley Jansen. And you know, the bottom line is that that this team invested a lot of money um, th- to the dismay of some people, a lot of money in Kenley Jansen. So they're not going to be that quick to to pull the uh, the plug on on Kenley. He's had sort of an interesting little run recently, where you know, coming into the season, everybody was wondering you know he's one of the slowest workers in the league and uh they were wondering how he would deal with the pitch clock and then he actually one of his recent uh, stumbles was related to the fact that he was actually pitching too quickly um so he you know can't can't quite get it right but i think that'll hopefully he'll eventually smooth that out and uh and so forth. But, uh, you know, bottom line is, you know, I think it's Martin and Winkowski for now. And then when Schreiber can, can get back, it's not, you know, hugely, um, uh, you know, significant injury, you know, he'll, he'll slot back there as well. Um, the one other thing to watch out for, you know, is obviously the Red Sox kind of surprisingly have a bunch of different rotation options and, and they, you know, just added James Paxton back to their rotation. Uh, so, you know, they, and I think they've already announced that Nick Pavetta is been bounced from the rotation and will be heading to the bullpen. And even though his results have been kind of, you know, very spotty as a starter, interesting arm, and maybe he can carve himself a, a significant role at some point, especially now that they've finally moved on from uh, Ryan Brazier, who was designated for assignment. And they have Garrett Whitlock coming back soon too. I think he's got one more rehab start. 
They haven't said yet what's going to happen there, but one possibility is that uh, Tanner Houck will move back to the bullpen uh, because the the numbers show that Houck has uh, paid a pretty big penalty second and third time through the lineup. You know, really, you know, the, the numbers sort of scream a little bit so far. You know, it's obviously a small sample, but uh, sort of scream reliever a little bit because he's he's uh, getting through that first time through the order pretty well, but then. Um, you know, people are catching up to him. So, um, you know, he, he could be a factor at, the, at some point in the bullpen as well. In Tampa, staying in the American League East, still your bailiwick, the Rays activated right-hander Peter Fairbanks from the 15-day IL earlier this week. You were on top of this story. What happens with Fairbanks' return as far as the Rays' bullpen goes? Well, I mean, I think the definitely the initial take was that, uh, and probably still the the, the real uh, take is that, uh, you know, the hill slot right back into the ninth inning. The Tampa sort of took, you know, we all joke all the time about how, uh, you know, it's basically a roulette wheel back there for, for save opportunities. But um, the, uh, when the the Rays signed Fairbanks to a long-term contract. And uh, for, for those who sort of have uh, speculated that the way Rays, uh, the way Tampa handles relievers is somewhat related to keeping their, you know, arbitration uh, costs down and, and so forth. Um, that sort of took that off the table and uh, Fairbanks is coming off a great season and it did look like he was going to dominate the save opportunities for a while. Um, the condition that he has that was not necessarily directly tied to this IL stint, but uh, you know, where, where he gets numbness in his, in his fingers and so forth. Um, you know, I guess in the back of my mind, it's a little nagging, especially when um you know, he came back and in his first appearance on May 17th, gave up two earned runs and took the loss in a game against the Mets. Um, so I'm, I'm just a little nervous about Fairbanks. And, and of course, uh, Jason Adam, when, when Fairbanks was out, filled in quite admirably, reeled off a bunch of saves. Actually, you know, it was a little disappointing to those of us who had uh, have Fairbanks on the roster because the uh, – Save opportunities were coming fast and furious for Adam in a way that they weren't for Fairbanks before he hit the IL. Um, but anyway, those those are sort of the two big guys at the back of the pen. We still think that Fairbanks is uh, the main ninth inning guy, but there's at least a little caution flag in terms of is he really past uh, the injury issue and and the the condition with that uh, he's treating with medication that uh, you know caused some concern uh, before he hit the IL. And of course, we know, as you said, that Tampa has been perfectly willing in the past to doink around with their uh, bullpen situation, do a lot of matching and that kind of stuff. So it's not inconceivable that Adam could still end up with a few saves. But I think you're right that in the in the immediate future, they're going to give Fairbanks every chance to try to reclaim that's that role. Uh, let's move over to the National League, start with the hitters. In Arizona, they had something of a job share at shortstop, but according to Baseball HQ analyst Dan Marcus, in his playing time tomorrow coverage of the National League West, that balance has shifted. Yeah, indeed. Um, and shifted in the direction of Geraldo Peromo um, and away from Nick Ahmed, who uh, Feels like he's been uh, in and out of the Arizona shortstop picture for you know a very long time. Uh, Perdomo, switch hitter, twenty three years old. Um, you, you know, 
may be overshadowed by some of the other uh, quote unquote breakouts out there in the world. But, uh, you know, he's hitting as of as we're talking 330 on the season and 110 plate appearances. He's got three homers, four steals. Um and, uh, you know, basically sort of has, has uh, grabbed the lion's share of the playing time. Um, th- there is a little bit of, um, you know, concern about, uh, you know, the skills are a little softer than uh, we'd like to see. Um, you know, he, he uh, 80% contact rate, uh, you know, the, uh, but the hard contact isn't necessarily there you know, reason to think that that batting average might come down. And, uh, you know, in terms of if you're in a keeper league or a dynasty league, whether you should be sort of uh, rushing to secure the services of Perdomo, I think you have to realize that uh, one of the top prospects in the game is behind him in that organization and Jordan Lawler, who I actually just traded for in my National League Keeper League yesterday. And uh, he's been off to a slow start in AA this year. Um, but, uh, you know, a guy with that type of uh, pedigree can turn things around pretty quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, you sort of figure by, you know, this time next year, you might be talking about Jordan Lawler as the starting shortstop for the, uh, for the Diamondbacks and not Perdomo. Yeah, Lawler hasn't played anywhere but shortstop, I think, in his minor league career and even before that uh, in school. So uh, I think given the fact that they have a lot of draft capital invested, that they're going to give him every chance to take over that role. And maybe Perdomo ends up being a utility man bouncing around the infield and that kind of thing. It's an interesting thing you mentioned about 82% contact right away sounds really good compared to what it is in Major League Baseball these days, more around 72%, I think is the average, something like that. But then that 79% hard contact index, which is a combination of power and contact, seems to indicate that uh, there's something not going well in the overall picture because he's making a lot of contact, but not much of it is of the hard hit kind which means a lot of it is of the soft hit kind and the soft hit kind and the medium hit kind are the outmaking kind. Uh, so I think Perdomo's the guy you want to ride with for now, but certainly if you can get Jordan Lawler in a trade in a keeper league, I think you should. Who'd you get? Uh, who'd you give up for him? Oh, you know, I, it was one of those, uh, as people unaffectionately refer to it as, uh, as a dump deal. So I gave up, uh, some established, uh, major league talent, but I got, uh, I got Lawler and Pete Crow Armstrong and, um, uh, you know, the, uh, catcher second base prospect in, in Pittsburgh, whose name is escaping me at the moment. Andy Rodriguez. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, uh, you know, hopefully reloading for a uh, for a brighter future. You know, gave up the the likes of Paul Goldschmidt and a couple other guys, wow. but uh, you know, it was uh, it was not going to happen for me this year in that league, Patrick. It was yeah. uh, I had uh, I had no pitching. Uh, everybody got hurt uh, or was bad, so it, it was just not happening. I won last year, so this is this is what happens in keeper leagues. You have to sometimes you have to you know take a step back and, yep. and go and through the goals. cycle for sure. In San Francisco, Dan Marcus reported some clarification in what had been a pretty crowded infield situation. Yeah, indeed. Um, VR, I, I had him. Uh, I forget whether it was TGFBI or, or uh, you know, one of one of the uh, expert leagues, and uh, just you know, uh, fell out of favor and deservedly so. He was he was doing very little, um, and. Uh, 
you know, basically what seems to have emerged is, uh, you know, three full-time regulars between Lamont Wade, uh, you know, who we've always liked his uh, power skills and, you know, he, it seems like he could never quite get completely through the thicket there, but, uh, you know, now it seems like he has. Um, you got Tyro Estrada, who, of course, has, you know, had an excellent year last year and has now followed that up. And, and you know, he's playing pretty much every day. You know, Wade's leading off, Estrada's hitting second. Uh, and, you know, the uh, the other guy who's a big winner here is uh, is J.D. Davis, who, uh, you know, again, we all, I think, when he signs in uh, San Francisco, you sort of pen him into a somewhat uninteresting short side platoon role with a little bit of, uh, you know, extra uh, at bats here and there, but nothing to get too excited about. But now it looks like, uh, you know, he may be one of the big winners at uh, third base. Of course, uh, you know, they also have uh, young Casey Schmidt hanging around who has done nothing but hit since he uh, has come up. So, uh, you know, I, you know, one of these guys could be up Schmidt's Creek. No, I'm, I'm sorry. I, you know, whatever. But anyway, yeah, I know. The thing here is that uh, Brandon Crawford is still around. Um, and, you know, he's, he's sort of a local legend, age 36, but definitely seems to be on the uh, back side of his career and so forth. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, if, if there weren't sort of, um, a little bit of sentiment involved and, and what have you. And, uh, you know, we, we were just being cold and calculating. I think, you know, they might actually kick Brandon Crawford to the curb and, and, uh, you know, move on, um, to, to a guy like Schmidt. And, uh, but you know, th that may be, um, unpopular in the, uh, in the locker room and, uh, and so forth, but we'll see. I mean, if, if, uh, you know, Crawford, you know, we're only talking 88, uh, plate appearances at this point. Um, but, uh, you know, very little happening, you know, below average power, 65% contact rate, you know, he may play himself out of, uh, out of a job, um, pretty, pretty quickly and, and so forth. Um, for now they have some DH, DH at bats available because, uh, Jock Peterson and, uh, among others, Austin Slater, um, is on the, uh, IL as well. So, you know, they do have that wiggle room a little bit to kind of keep Crawford happy and to keep, uh, Schmidt happy, but, uh, things may come to a head when, when Jock Peterson comes back. In the speculator column, analyst Ryan Bloomfield is looking at some new upside projections for the rest of the season. And one of the names on his list was Los Angeles catcher, Will Smith. <laughs> yeah. So Will Smith, I mean, we already knew he was good and, you know, a uh, top tier fantasy catcher. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, as you pointed out, the name of the, the, uh, the, the, column is up, you know, upside projections. And, and, uh, so to think about the fact that, uh, Will Smith might have further upside, um, is pretty exciting and, uh, but it's warranted in this case, you know, he, he is, uh, got the best, uh, you know, what we call a baseball HQ batting eye ratio, 1.7 walks for every strikeout. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, we think of, uh, Luis Arise as this, uh, you know, plate skills master, but, uh, 
his walk percentage minus strike percentage is plus 6%, which is nearly double arises. So Smith is just, uh, you know, sort of uh, showing that the, you know, the strike zone is, you know, he's the master of the strike zone. Um, we calculate an XBA for players for Will Smith. That's 320. Um, you know, again, 92% contact rate um, and hitting the ball really hard, uh, uh, you know, 140 uh, XPX, which is our expected power metric. Um, and uh, he's one of just two hitters with that, you know, who's attained that level. The other is Joey Gallo. Um, so, you know, Ryan basically said, you know, he could be a 300 plus batting average, 25 plus home run uh, catcher. And we haven't had one of those in over a decade. Uh, so, uh, pretty exciting stuff all, all told for, uh, for Will Smith. I suppose you could say that Will Smith isn't a slap hitter. <laughs> Let's move over finally to the national league pitchers and we'll start with, uh, Ryan Bloomfield speculator column again about upside. Cause he says Cincinnati right-hander Hunter Green has plenty of upside, but the last time I checked, Chris, and I have him on a couple of fantasy rosters, he didn't look all that upsidey. <laughs> well, I mean, I guess the uh, the main message is to you, to you, uh, Patrick, is to uh, stay the course, hold the line. I know there was just another. Uh, his most recent start was another uh, bump in the road. Of course, that was in Coors Field, so maybe he gets a pass on that one. But. Uh, Anyway, uh, you know, that his uh, six earned run uh, four inning outing at Coors Field on May 15th left his uh, ERA at 4.60, his whip at 1.58. But, um, you know, he he, Green is a is a strikeout machine uh, as one would, you know, guess with a fastball that averages 99 miles an hour. and a, a near 90 mile an hour wipeout slider. Uh, you know, he's cha- you know, challenging uh, hitters in the strike zone and, and he's winning those battles. Um, he's, uh, you know, right up there with names like Joe Ryan, Spencer Strider, uh, Luis Castillo and Clayton Kershaw when it comes to, um, you know, Z swing, Z contact, so forth. So, I mean, he... Um, you know, like I said, the message to you and all the other Hunter Green um, sufferers out there is that uh, hopefully better days are ahead. And on behalf of all the sufferers, let me ask you, he certainly sounds like the real deal when it comes to getting the ball over the plate and getting swings and misses as part of the results. But why are his general results for fantasy purposes so lousy? Yeah, I guess you got to start with the uh, unlucky 42% hit rate. Uh, you know, his XERA is, is a fair bit below his actual ERA at 3.97. Uh, so you have to, uh, you know, you look at that first. And then, uh, you know, the one thing that's unfortunate that isn't going to change is that uh, he does his work at home in the Great American Small Park. Um, and, you know, he is giving up fly balls at a, you know, between line drives and fly balls. He's almost at 70%, you know, only a 31% uh, ground ball rate. So getting a lot of balls up in the air in the, in the great American small park, you know, of course he's providing a lot of velocity, uh, you know, coming in. So uh, it's probably got some velocity going out. 
Um, and, uh, you know, that win total, which like you said, is stuck on zero, uh, may not improve anytime soon because of, of the team he's playing for, you know, rebuilding. Um, so, uh, but in terms of, of ERA and, and ratios, uh, I, I think the, the recommendation still, uh, holds that, uh, that better days are ahead. Spencer Strider might have something to say about Ryan's speculation that Hunter Green could end up leading the National League in strikeouts. Let's move on to Los Angeles, where right-hander Dustin May, this is terrible news, diagnosed with a flexor pronator strained in his surgically repaired right elbow. It's going to miss at least four weeks. Mark Gannon on the story for playing time today. With Dustin May going onto the shelf, what happens in an already roiled Dodgers rotation? Just horrible luck for Dustin May. He missed most of 2021, 22 with Tommy John surgery. Um, you know, he's going the route of getting the PRP injection and uh, trying to avoid surgery. But as we know, th- that sometimes does not end well. Um, you know, we, we had just recently written a little facts and flukes on him that he may have been somewhat overachieving anyway, uh, before he hit the, uh, uh, IL. So, you know, his XERA was 4.21, even though his, uh, ERA was, uh, over run and a half, uh, lower. Um, so, uh, you know, the, uh, the upshot here is that, you know, we still have, uh, you know, Kershaw and Julio Arias, although he, he just got touched up a little bit the other night. But uh, behind them, it's uh, Noah Syndergaard, who struggled, uh, uh, Tony Gonsolin. And then, you know, there's some prospects there between uh, Gavin Stone, Ryan Pepio, Michael Grove, who have been inconsistent um, and so forth. So, you know, I, I think that... Um, you know, basically, it looks like the first pitcher to get a uh, chance here might be Gavin Stone. Uh, we have increased his uh, innings pr- projection by uh, uh, a significant amount, um, and uh, you know, two point five percent of their the team's innings, which you know is a pretty uh, you know, substantial number. He, he got one start earlier this year. It didn't go that great. Four innings pitch, four earned runs, gave up eight hits. Um, but, um, you know, the manager said, quote unquote, that, uh, that stone makes the most sense to replace may, um, we gave, um, Ryan Pepio, a small bump. Um, he is facing live hitters, uh, rehabbing from a strained oblique, so uh, he could be ready by the end of the month. Um, and then, you know, we'll just sort of see where things shake out from there. Um, you know, Stone is sort of an interesting guy, you know, sort of a, uh, a top prospect for the team. So, you know, if things go better for him uh, this time around in the rotation, he's, he's certainly one of the types of guys that, you know, could just uh, grab hold of a rotation spot and run with him. And this might not be a bad time if your league rules allow you to stash Bobby Miller, a prospect who's uh, certainly looking like he might get some playing time a little later on. Uh, Chris, thanks a million for helping out, pinch hitting for Ray, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right, Patrick. Thanks for having me.
Chris Olson is a team playing time analyst at BaseballHQ.com. Coming up, we have part two of our feature expert interview with Mike Kurland. But let me first highlight another great item on the Baseball HQ site right now in rotisserie gaming. Analyst Matt Dodge makes his return looking at stealing past the quarter mark. The rotisserie gaming column is just another great resource at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Mike Kurland. From Gaining the Edge, The Athletic, and the Bases Loaded podcast, Mike, welcome back to part two. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm, it's a lot of fun having sitting down and talking about all this stuff right now. Let's ta- talk about something else you and Bubba were talking about and something you comment on a lot on Twitter. You talk about having and trusting a process for making roster decisions what kinds of process mistakes do you think many fantasy managers commonly make? I think one, we are afraid of to make drops. I think there's this whole like, well, I drafted them for a reason. I can't drop this guy. What if something happens? And yes, you could play the what if game. And some you, if you're not making, there's an old adage, and I forget who says it. I think you hear it all across the industry of, if you if you you're not if you're not making mistakes, you're not playing it right or so there's a weird it's like i actually for some things it's like old adage i should know how to say it better but it's one of those things where you're going to make mistakes and if you're not then you're probably not playing like you're not playing the game right it is what it is you can't just sit here and sit on your hands because i feel like you're gonna miss out on some opportunities so i think being afraid to make drops is something we need to get better at doing so that comes with obviously don't be too trigger happy you don't want to drop a guy because of one bad week that you drafted and believed in but you get my point like you got to move on sometimes especially with those guys that you draft in the middle to late rounds more so in the late rounds first obviously uh, another thing is don't be afraid to bench a guy who's struggling just because they are like a mid-round guy that you really like josh naylor was a good example and i know we're gonna talk about him in a little bit but uh josh naylor was a guy that he was nothing he wasn't a guy you necessarily was a must start and he was off to a slow start so i i sat him at a couple times this year already based on matchups and stuff so understand that you don't have to start a guy because of where you drafted them especially come may june draft prices that's another thing draft prices kind of lose their luster probably a month in the season because if we're drafting today are you taking the same guy in the same spot would you take would you be taking trey uh trey turner over ronald cooney jr right now no nobody would but a lot of people were before the season and we're talking six weeks right now just for reference so just it's a reminder that values change and sure rest of season projections and all that do matter especially for certain players but that that doesn't mean that you can't sit here and um adjust on the fly for certain things or just don't be afraid to sit a guy who's running cold um another thing stashing injured players this goes more this is more uh depending on where you play it's going to be specific to that but uh don't you don't want to stash like a guy like O'Neill Cruz that's really hard to hold on to all season long. Don't be afraid to move on from him if you don't have IL spots because by the time he comes back, what not include not including setbacks and all that, he might not even make it back this year. You never know. But we're talking what maybe a month and a half of maybe two months if you're lucky of O'Neill Cruz the rest of the season. And we're still two, we're still two and a half months away from that. Uh, another thing is you know, again, buying too much into hot and cold starts. You don't want to overreact. What I do on Twitter, you mentioned I'm pretty, I tweet a lot. A lot of it's just pointing out trends. I'll point out who's hot, who's cold. I'm not giving analysis in terms of, hey, this guy is legit or, hey, this guy, like, it's too early to say that. But at the same time, it goes back to what we talked about before. You have to react first and then wait for the information to come in second. And you have to react in terms of adding these guys and even playing these guys while they're running hot. And if you're lucky enough to find a guy that actually is breaking out, fantastic. But don't buy into it. Don't just believe what's happening because of a month of good baseball. It's 
we've seen months, we see hot stretches for half a season sometimes that never turn into more for the rest of a player's career. So it's one of those things where just don't buy too much, don't buy in too much into small samples. And that's kind of where I've been at so far in terms of like early season stuff. I, I, I try to incorporate all this stuff into my decision-making process. Well, talking of that, you mentioned uh, Josh Naylor of the Guardians really struggling all year, especially against left-handers. And some of his fantasy managers were starting to bench him. Uh, last week, they were gnashing their teeth when he erupted for three home runs in a weekend home series versus the Angels. And you said that benching him was actually a justifiable move. I think I know the answer, but what's the message in benching Josh Naylor and missing out on three home runs? The message is, is that you're not always going to be right. <laughs> it is what it is. If you're right more than you're wrong, that's kind of the net positive you're aiming for with analysis. But the thing with Naylor, why it was justified was it was really simple. Lack of success against left-handed pitching. He started just seven of the last 13 over the last 30 days against lefties. They play a lot of lefties, and he's started 50% of the time. He wasn't even guaranteed to play or start every game. Sure, he'll pinch hit, but in a, in a day and age where plate appearances are kind of a king, especially the deeper you go in formats, you're, you, you're, you're talking about a guy who didn't have a guaranteed path to those, a guy who's been struggling recently and going back to last year against this certain handedness pitcher. There was no reason to think that he was suddenly going to make it click against a lefty, although there were promising underlying numbers that suggest it was coming. It just for it to suddenly click against lefties was weird. And again, with the playing time, not even being a secure thing entering the weekend for Josh Naylor. So I thought the process behind that move made sense, but just process isn't always going to lead to the results. It should lead to results more times than not. Otherwise your process is wrong, but just know that no process is perfect. But I think those who made that move, it made a lot of sense. I think that's exactly right. That sometimes you, the, what is the saying goes, you're better off making, having a bad outcome from a good process than a good outcome from a bad process. And I, I think that's uh, certainly the message. Uh, the skeptical observer about that might point out two factors. First, any hitter can have three hot games. And second, you can especially have three hot games against pitchers like Matt Moore, Ryan Tapera, and Carlos Estevez. You had another example of a good process with bad results. You cut Christopher Morrell just before he got called up and started banging um, like a, the second coming of Mike Schmidt or something. But what were your process considerations in making the drop? Morrell was a guy that the team didn't seem to really care to go out of the way to get him. I know he was mashing in the minors, but he all, it was just also one of those things where it's was like, okay, I needed, to, I needed to make a cut. And there was one guy in the week I cut him. Was for I, I had one claim with him as the guy I was dropping, and it was for Louis Varland, a guy who I believed in and a guy that I thought could be a, a difference maker for my team in the moment. And I think Louis Varland was well worth cutting Morel, especially considering the state of how pitching worked out. What I learned from this was my process wasn't perfect, obviously. I mean, I dropped Christopher Morel. What part of that's any good right now? But it, it led to at least it was for a, it was for, it worked out in my favor in terms of it got me a player I really believed in, a player that's been performing at least to a standard I hoped they would. It's hard. You got to make these tough cuts. I think making tough cuts is part of the game, especially, again, going back to these formats. The ETA was a question for Morrell, considering how the team felt about him. Just a day or two before, you know, Fad ran on Sunday, the manager came out and pretty much said, like, hey, we don't have a spot for him and we don't have a role for him, and we're not going to make a point to bring him up for whatever reason. Why do I think a guy's going to get called up if the team's saying they're not? Of course, comes Monday, and he gets called up. But it's like I feel like I, I faded him for the right reasons. Playing time wasn't secured. ETA wasn't known. Somebody spent. Somebody ended up spending twenty five or twenty five percent of original budget, two hundred fifty dollars in fab on them in my league. So at least they drew a big bid from uh, from a team in my league. So now, obviously, I did learn a little bit from that, and 
I realized maybe I should have been a little more patient. I could have probably avoided zeros another way, maybe made a different drop. But at the end of the day, I, I think the reasoning behind my my drop made sense in the moment. It just didn't work out. It is what it is. You also discussed Jorge Mateo in the lineup analysis and on the Bases Loaded podcast. And as we know, after leading all fantasy players at dollar value in April, Mateo has been maybe the worst in all of May. His strikeout rate doubled to 30%. Walk rate fell by half to 4%. His WOBA is down more than two-thirds to a not-too-lofty 135. What do you think would be the right process for fantasy managers right now if they have Mateo on their rosters given his May collapse? Unless you absolutely need stolen bases, I'm sitting him. I'm not dropping him. I don't think he's a drop candidate just yet because we know Mateo can do this. We saw him do this last year too. Up and down. I think there was two times in the year last year where he just went off and you want him for that. You might miss a little bit because you're benching him, but he's batting in the bottom third of the order regularly. And the issue with Mateo is that there's also a lot of young talent coming up for the middle infield of that, of that team. So if he doesn't get going, I know the glove plays but Mateo could end up finding himself into a utility role between infield outfield. If you know, and then maybe even a trade candidate considering depending on how this team's performing at the traded line, but they have so much talent there that I don't know how long Mateo's leash is going to be at, you know, playing every day, especially hitting that lineup. But right now I'd be benching them if I could afford to, again, it goes back to, can I afford to miss out on stone bases and maybe a, because the way again goes back to NFBC formats, if you're in a weekly league, understand that you might miss a week of production. But considering you saw how good he could be over a month, missing a week while while avoiding maybe two or three weeks of bad production kind of is worth the it was worth the risk there. So right now I'm benching him if I have him. I don't know if you covered it, but let me ask you about another Oriole who has been pretty unhelpful from opening day. What's your process take on Gunnar Henderson? Henderson was a guy that I I think was had most people just questioning like how legitimate is it or like is he going to be able to take this step forward and he's another guy that if I can afford to I'm sitting him I'm not dropping Gunnar Henderson the talent is undeniable the power and the speed those are legitimate skills of his the issue is what in for almost fifty in almost fifty percent of his plate appearances it's a walker strikeout right now he's just very patient a very patient approach at that and a guy that the skills and the ta- I mean the talent is there but it's not coming together. You can't plug him in confidently right now. And it's, I I don't really, I, I, you can't drop him. I I don't think you could drop him unless you're in a very shallow format, like a 10 teamer type of thing. But he's a guy that I have no problem benching. I'm benching him in leagues for, I'll play a hot hand over him right now because if he gets going great, but he is such a drag right now. Gunnar Henderson's such a drag right now across, across multiple uh, categories that it's hard to justify keeping him in there at the moment. In reverse, you mentioned Jack Flaherty earlier. He was terrible through his first seven starts. I think he's a six ERA, a 165 whip, and he might've made things worse with some comments to the media that were kind of bizarre (laughs) rather than really troubling, I guess, except uh, troubling in the sense that they are bizarre. He's been really good the last couple of times out. He's 225 ERA, 142 whip still though, the last couple, including seven shutout innings Monday. What's a sound process, do you think, Mike, for thinking about how to manage a guy like Jack Flaherty or maybe to broaden it out? What's the best process to manage a Jack Flaherty rags to riches to rags to riches type of situation? He turns into a uh, bench streamer at this point. You know, you kind of just have him on your bench, try to plug him in versus good lineups. If you see him getting on a little bit of a roll here, obviously maybe give him a little more leash. But he was a guy that was absolutely dragging you, obviously, up until uh, this 
the last couple starts and even the start before this wasn't great five walks over five innings he just managed to keep the er you know era kind of down because he only gave up three earned runs but it was last start that you know obviously the 10 strikeouts really catch your eye and he was but even then before then he wasn't a guy that you weren't going into the start starting him with any confidence but this is when i get my this is when i start paying more attention because flaherty the last two outings you mentioned he's been better well if you go look at his pitch mix he's kind of been tinkering and you'll notice this last outing the uh the fastball the forcing fastball now two straight outings has been up You've seen a, uh, the curveball and the slider usage kind of be uh, split in terms of which one was up in which game. But then you have the sinker, or the sinker barely being thrown, and the cutter huge dip from twenty seven percent or the the day before, like the game before the the mini little you know get rights a uh, couple games all the way down to f- under f- five and six percent last two outings. So it's like he's still trying to figure it out. The velo ticked up as well, not like it's fantastic, but you're seeing a change in pitch mix going on going on right now as he's tinkering. And with this change of pitch mix for Flaherty, you're also seeing uh the velo tick up slightly. So there's reason for optimism. And but that's the thing that goes back to going that goes back to the initial process of why a monster savant stuff every day. Because okay, cool, we had a good outing. Let's take a note of it. Two good in a row. Let's go look at what's going on. Oh, he's changing things up. So when you have positive results with a tangible change in approach from a player, it makes it easier to at least buy in in the short term. Teams are going to adapt. They always do. This forcing fastball is not good anyway. It's been getting crushed. So the fact that he's leaning on it more is a little concerning. It's not necessarily a good thing, but the velo being up on it does, it did help it at least last outing. It helped it perform very well. So maybe it was a matter of uh, matching up with the brewers at the right time. It's, it's one of those things, but at the end of the day, you keep tabs on this guy. You probably stream him based on matchups. He's not a guy you're making a point to start though. At least not yet. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here with Mike Kurland, lineup analyst at Gaining the Edge at Patreon and The Athletic. Does also the Bases Loaded podcast and has a lot of really interesting Twitter commentary at, at Mike underscore Kurland, K-U-R-L-A-N-D. Mike, we talked earlier about the importance of process and lately, it seems like everybody's talking about a process for figuring out how much money to, to spend on fab bidding. And I haven't seen anybody figure it out yet, to be honest with you. But you talked about this quite a bit when you were on with Bubba on his podcast. What's your process for choosing the players on whom you want to bid? So to choose players, I try to keep it pretty simple. Do I believe that they're going to be a season-long impact or not? And once they, once they, And most of the times, the answer is no, they're not. So that already takes my bid out of this, like, this big number right and now i'm like all right so i I look at these players these players it goes back into kind of what i just do i cover playing time so i'm like all right let's see what's happening via playing time i'll make a list of players i really like what's trending up down in terms of production playing time and then i'll go look at schedules there's and i I try to stick to a week out because right now opposing pitchers i mean it's good to know where players are gonna play maybe for two weeks in terms of like venues but opposing pitchers are changing daily you know teams in uh option uh, bailey falter was optioned for reference uh crasco's returning so you can't really make a too much you can't make too much of a of a guess in terms of matchups beyond a week in terms of like lefty righty splits but these guys that you're looking at off the waiver wire especially in, in these deeper leagues a lot of them are platooning so you gotta know matchups and that's kind of i start so i start there in terms of who's trending up and down in terms of production guys i think i can get for a decent price that aren't gonna break the bank especially if i view them as a streamer and then i kind of just go from there i'll make my bids based around that in terms at least i have an idea of who i like for what reason now if it's a guy i think okay maybe there's a maybe there's a one month use here just based on this guy being out injured for a month so that might have more intrigue or hey this guy has been good in the past 
had a little bit of a down run and now he's starting to get going. Maybe there's a little more interest. So I'll, I'll, I'll take that into, into, I'll take that all, put it all into like what's going on here in my thought process and decide on which players I want to be more aggressive on than not. But then to go a step further, you have to understand the market. And obviously you had Zach Waxman on the other day and he does a great job of breaking down the market. So you take a look at kind of what his work's done. You take a look at how players and depending on if you've like, I try to look at, okay, this skill set. This player and their skill set went for this much the last few weeks. This player and this skill set and perceived or perceived skill set went for this much. Like Bryce Miller, Yuri Perez. Like if you want one of those guys, you know what you have to pay. If you want a guy like a Jake Berger, you knew what you were going to have to pay. Just because you can kind of get an idea based on what the market's done of how they're going to value these players just overall. But then to go beyond that, you, go, you start looking at your own league and take a look at your league tendencies because the market's not always going to be right. I knew I can get a guy like Ian Anderson or not well, wrong wrong Ian, uh, Nick Anderson excuse me wrong Anderson I, Nick Anderson I knew I can get him very cheap because of how my league's been with those eighth inning guys even with Iglesias having the bad uh, below that Sunday so I knew I can get him cheap however I know I have to be more aggressive with guys like um I don't know I just Morel would have been a guy I had to be very aggressive on and I, I just wasn't going to pay that price so you have to know your league's tendencies and which and which managers have these tendencies and understand okay so this manager tends to be aggressive but oh look they only have like three hundred dollars left so maybe I know that they won't be able to, if they price it, they do go this high, they're crippling themselves. Meanwhile, this one guy I know won't bid above a certain amount almost ever in a week. So I know if I, and I know what type of players he likes. So if I want that player too, I know what I have to bid to secure that player. And I'm not always right. Last week, I was really inefficient in my league, but the week, a couple weeks before I was like within two to $3 on pretty much all my bids. So it goes to show you, it's just a matter of, it's it's not a perfect science, but if you really care to try to be as efficient as possible, you get an idea of what the market is. And then once you figure out the market for these players and the skill sets, you kind of just go to your own league and really dive deep into the weekly process of like who's doing what with what type of players. And it'll give you an idea of how to bid these players based on what I, based on what everyone else is doing in your league. Yeah, that's tougher to do when you're playing in like NFBC format where you're not playing against the same guys year in and year out. But if you're in a keeper league or some kind of league that's got some longevity to it and you know, you should know by now what those other guys in your league tend to do. It's like being at a poker table and knowing what kind of guys you're dealing with. And you need to think about that when you're setting your bids because otherwise, Mike, I think you'd agree there are so many variables that it's really hard to set a, a concrete rule about you shouldn't spend more than this. I see people doing this, by the way, never spend more than 30%, always spend at least 5%, these kind of things. I don't think there is any hard and fast rule, but do you have any sort of things that you do in all your leagues when you're setting your prices? No, I really do just kind of like how I treat player analysis, how I treat everything else. It really is a league by league specific thing. I, like I said, the, when I gauge, when I do try to, the general thing I do is when I gauge the market based on the first few weeks of the season, I try to get an idea of what the market will value a player at. And then you're for the first few weeks, players kind of show their hands. It, at least it's been my experience uh, in fact, a lot of players will show their hands in terms of how they bid the type of players they'll bid on. Or if like, you know, if they're in on typical market guys, maybe they're bidding like the typical market, which I've had some of those, you know, like you're your president for over 400 in my league for reference. So it's like, I knew I wasn't getting him just because I wasn't in need of pitching that bad. But my point was, is that, uh, yeah, I treat every league the same exact way in terms of like, I start, I start with that, with that, uh, the, the greater, that big outlook. And I kind of get more granular based on other factors within that, that specific league. 
This week's fab prize might be Cincinnati infielder Matt McLean. He was really rocking triple A, boy, oh boy. 7-10 slugging, 12 homers, 10 stolen bases. And I think he hit second in the order his first game on Monday of this week. But there are some reports out there that say he might only be up until TJ Friedel comes back, which is not going to be as long as might have been first thought. So how are you calibrating your approach for this week's fab, when you look at a guy like Matt McLean, assuming you need a guy like Matt McLean, and most of us probably could use one. Yeah, that's it's tough because the same stuff was being said about Yuri Perez in terms of him not potentially not being up for beyond this week. Uh, so you kind of have to understand that's the risk going into it with a guy like this. Now, I'm honestly completely torn on what I want to do here. I could, I mean, it's hard not to need a Matt McLean upside, especially considering you mentioned the the very toolsy numbers he was throwing up in the minors, the great triple slash. It was just a very solid all-around line. And then you get to call Cincinnati home, and you, and you can have this guy on your team for four months potentially. There's a lot of reasons to buy in, and there's no arguing that. I'm not, even, and I'm not one to try to hide my thoughts on that, but I honestly don't know how to bid him yet. I don't know if I'm going to be in on him. Do I want to wait for his teammates to come up that I think are going to be up soon too? Do I want to hold – because I've been rather – where I'm at in fab, it's like – uh, I, this would be like, this would be my guy. Like if I go after him, I'm kind of committed. Like that's my, at that point. So it's like, I got to make sure, like, do I want to do this now? Could I, now this type of skill set can be very difference making for a team at this point, especially it goes back to the fact that they're, they're hitting him second, but now are they hitting him second because they believe in him from day one or are they hitting McLean second? Because you mentioned he might not be up long. So they want to just give him a chance to provide reason to force their hands. They want to get him a good look at major league pitching. There's, there's a lot of question marks there, but, I, I don't think they called him up not to keep him up. And the fact that Friedel plays the outfield should only help McLean because it was what, uh, Barrero who's playing shortstop who hasn't really been playing because of it. They have guys like Fairchild and uh, Ramos that can easily be sent down out of the way, DFA even, whatever. I, I don't know how much Friedel should get in the way there. I'm just, and maybe unless somehow Senzel needs to go back to the outfield and then it gets really crowded. But I, I don't think they brought McLean up to as a shortstop that's like the one need that's like with their biggest need so i think mclean i would say he probably stays because of the fact that they could use a shortstop but we will see of course and but if you want them you're gonna have to go probably 250 plus or at least that's what i've seen i have to go double check the market like morel went for 250 in my league for reference i think mclean will be valued very similarly even though because you know how this goes the the shiny new toy always gets a bit up for and I don't know if I'm willing to go there just yet. I'm going to have to do some more homework and see how he does the rest of the week. And what's your process for assessing pitchers in the various closer go-rounds like we seem to have right now, Arizona, maybe the Yankees, Philadelphia, where we don't really know from game to game who's going to be the closer. And then we have situations where the proven closers are struggling, like Iglesias in Atlanta, Kenley Jansen in Boston. And then we got all of these sort of unsettled situations. So how do you decide which guys to target and how much to spend on potential closers or current closers who are struggling? So if a guy has the role, he's going to get a huge, a huge amount of money. It's just the way it goes. But like you mentioned, it's been kind of, this is weird. This is the first year where it's been kind of like, you know who the guy is, right? Minus a few unsettled situations. And so Castro, for instance, in Arizona is a guy that I really liked. And the, the way I go about it is that either A, I'm stashing them knowing like I'm I'm on I'm these these bullpens pretty well. I have a couple, I have a buddy of mine, George, that part of GTE who covers bullpens really in depth. And I know Jewett's really good at it as well. 
But uh, it's one of those things where you have to just like last week, I, I, you saw the changing of the guard, or at least what I thought was a changing of the guard in Arizona when they had Castro get a save, get a win, pitching almost primarily the ninth. I'm like, all right, cool. So he's earning more of that that lion's share of it. And then of course, come Monday, I I got him and he pitched the eighth, and Chafin got the save. So naturally. Like my process is kind of like I just monitor like just like anyone else will, and I really try to make an assessment based on how the manager is utilizing these relief pitchers. Just to end up being wrong half the time. It feels like anyway, it's really frustrating. Philly, for instance, was another one where I was really in on Kimbrel, and I think Kimbrel because people people you know Soda was another name, a hot name, but. If you watched last week, you saw Kimbrel get utilized in the ninth three times. One was with a four-run lead, one was first save, and one was in a tied game for a win. Sir Anthony Dominguez was setting him up, and I think he even pitched the seventh of one of those games. Soto got the one save, and that was the game where none of Dominguez or Kimbrel were available. So that told me, that told me right there that it was Kimbrel's uh, bullpen to, to lose again, I should say, to lose. I, maybe not again in Philly, but you get my point again in overall. But he's also a guy that has that pedigree, has the has that track that track record of being a dominant closer. The velo's up. I was a lot more in on him than I think most were. I think he can even run away with the job, potentially, even with Alvarado back, just because Alvarado could be so dominant and used elsewhere. But that's neither here nor there. I guess the point being is that I do my best to assess him just like anything else. I'm, it's almost like tracking, uh, tracking uh, lineups. You're trying to get an idea of, how these players getting used and in New York, Wandy Peralta randomly took uh, ran away with it. After, if you actually read the quotes, there was what Hamilton Holmes and uh, King were the three names mentioned. King has one save, which was a 1.1 inning outing. Wandy Peralta has, I think three in the last, like I think he's three for three in his last three outings in terms of getting save ops. So he wasn't even named in the mix, but I think he was just part of it. And no one ever thought he'd even be the guy. So I guess he's the guy right now. He's the guy I would definitely think is one, at least one of them going forward. I know King's going to factor, but, Holmes is suddenly just the eighth inning guy. It's uh, I understand Holmes hasn't been great, but he's been I think he's like up to four or five straight scoreless outings. And Holmes being the guy that they liked to start the year, I could see him getting back in on the mix. But that's the situation out of these three that I have a hardest time reading over New York because I don't know if I trust Boone to stick with a single guy anytime soon. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Mike Kurland from the Gaining the Edge website at Patreon, from the Athletic, the Bases Loaded podcast, and uh, Twitter at Mike underscore Kurland with a U-K-U-R-L-A-N-D. And Mike, as you know, I always like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. And for the last few weeks, we've been looking at the coming weekend's fab runs. We've been talking about fab process, so let's continue and start with your boons. Uh, this is a player who looks like good value for the weekend. Who's a batter who could be a boon in fab? J.J. Bleday is a guy that's just been really surprising to me. I really like him. Seth Brown had a setback, so there's no real issue with playing time. There is a bit of a platoon there, but we have three home runs for Bleday. Really solid uh, triple slash at the moment. The strikeout rate has come way down compared to what we saw in Miami in 2022. And there's been talks of an offseason approach change. It's purposeful. And when you're getting that type of... You get a change in approach with tangible results. I mentioned it with like Flaherty. I tend to buy in more. Is there a former top prospect for it's one of those things where I understand that he might not be flashy or exciting, but I do like what I'm seeing there. I'm willing to give him a shot. And how about a pitcher who could be a fab boon this weekend? And we actually talked about him. Um, I think I saw he's readily available in shallow formats. I'm still going to double down on, on Miguel Castro. I think Getting ahead of saves is a big deal. Trying to bank saves early is a big deal. And I think Castro is a guy that not only can be a, get the lion's share of the saves the rest of the way for this team, 
I think he's also been the better reliever among the two between him and Chafin. So I think Castro is a guy that can just get you some saves early on. He might be a trade candidate, a trade candidate, but he could also get traded into a position into a position where he is closing. Or as the Diamondbacks contend for a wild card, he would be stuck. He'd be staying there all season. So especially with the expand, you know, expanded playoffs, that's kind of changing how the trade deadline really works these days. So we'll see. I could see him being traded though. And I, I try again, it's all about trying to get ahead and banking some early saves. So Castro is a guy that I think, cause he is readily available in 12s and shallower, maybe get ahead of the market there with him. Now let's go to your Baines. These are players you think are going to be overbid this weekend and represent poor value. Who's a batter who could be a fab Bane this weekend? I think people are going to be mad at me, but I think uh, Casey Schmidt is a guy that, I mean, he's already, again, kind of the hype was there last week. He got bid on. He's still readily available. And a guy that I think is going to be, their expectations are going to be too high. He came out swinging. We saw the power there for Schmidt going back to spring training. We saw it in the first week. But I think the th- my issue is, is I don't think he's a bad player. I just think he's better for real life than fantasy. And as much as, you know, that hot week might, boost people's thoughts and opinions on him. I think it's a mistake to overreact to that. And I'm, I'm he's going to play every day. He's going to be useful, but I don't think he's going to be as useful as people might hope based on that hot start. And that's why I'm just going to say I'm out at what's likely to be a more expensive cost than I'm willing to pay, especially if he continues with the uh, production going forward the rest of this week. And who's a pitcher who could be a fab weekend Bane? A guy that I was out on last week and a guy that I refuse to buy in, even if he gets you another start, it's James Paxton. Not because I don't root for the guy. He seems like a nice guy, too. Like Nothing about him makes me want to root against him. It's, it's strictly the health. I know the velocity was there. I know he was effective. But how much are we expecting in terms of playing time, in terms of innings here with Paxton? They're probably going to let him throw until he can't throw anymore. I'm aware of that. But we haven't been able to see – we haven't seen him be effective or healthy in a number of years – and I know he drew some big bids in some deeper formats this last week. So if he throws another decent outing, I would just be apprehensive in terms. I wouldn't mind going out and getting him. It's a matter of I wouldn't be breaking the bank for him. And I think with pitching in the state that it's in, anybody with upside, anybody with potential, Paxton will kind of check those boxes and people might overreact and just be a little aggressive on, more aggressive on the bids than I would, I would like. And one of the reasons he's a nice guy, Canadian guy. I know. Yeah. You guys are the best. He's, he's actually, he played minor baseball like 10 minutes from where I grew up. So did uh, Justin Morneau. And nice. uh, Justin Morneau was a catcher in that organization. And one of the pitchers in the organization also play, uh, pitched in the major leagues as well. I can't think of who it was right at the moment. Uh, Mike Curlin's Boons, J.J. Blade of Oakland, and Miguel Castro of Arizona, his Baines, Casey Schmidt of San Francisco, and James Paxton, good Canadian guy, but a high risk, Mike Curlin thinks, in Boston. Uh, this has been terrific. Mike, uh, tell our listeners where they can keep up with your work. So you mentioned Twitter. I, I throw it all out there. So um, Mike underscore Curland, as you mentioned, my Twitter feed is where you can find it all. But um, most uh, right now, a lot of it's gaining the edge where I do try to give out like a weekly free article, usually just kind of encompassing a lot of lineup trends. But I do probably four to five of those write-ups a week for the Patreon exclusively. Among other things, I have a hitter streaming chart that we work on, a sheet that we have. We have um, other stuff on, in different tiers. The lowest tier is $5 a month, and that's like you, uh, that's where I give all the write-ups for. So there's that tier, uh, obviously. the um, And that's I do this. Actually, I, I work closely with Bubba. So Bench with Bubba has turned into almost like a weekly podcast with him as well. So Bubba is part of that group. Um, Michael Simeone, which is known as SP Streamer on Twitter. And then, again, go, referring my buddy George, just to give these guys shout-outs. They're really good people at Roto underscore Nino. Just great guys. I think all deserve 
deserve all the best and all the following as well. So I want to make sure I give them a quick shout. And then The Athletic, I just had an article go out today, a little before we started recording. So that's another place you can find me. I'm usually putting stuff out there once, maybe twice a month on occasion, depending on how it falls on the schedule. Other than that, uh, it's pretty much, uh, that's pretty much everything. I think that's, well, that's, a lot. Yeah. that's plenty. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you go through and, and 14th, I go here 15. Uh, well, like, I guess that's YouTube, it. the YouTube, I guess the YouTube and the podcast are a thing too. Great. Just look up gaining the edge on YouTube. You'll find my YouTube page where I'm doing a lot of stuff there too. So there's that. And then base loaded pot. So it's all there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's all there. Geez, Mike, this is a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much for helping us out. And I'll talk to you again soon. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Mike Curland writes about lineup analysis for Gaining the Edge and The Athletic, and he hosts the Bases Loaded podcast, and he has a very active Twitter feed. Check him out. Coming up, we have our Baseball HQ commentaries, the Minor League Minute, Frequent Flyer, and My Extra Innings are on the way. But first, one last reminder of the resources available to you when you subscribe to BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the daily call-ups report, our Baseball HQ scouting team looks at this week's call-ups, including Mets third baseman Mark Vientos, St. Louis left-handed starter Matthew Liberatore, Cincinnati shortstop Matt McLean, and left-hander Brandon Williamson. And don't forget the Eyes Have It Prospect podcast with hosts Brent Hershey and Chris Blessing of Baseball HQ scouting team. The latest episode is called the Cal League Dreaming episode. I've mentioned a few of the resources on the site now at BaseballHQ.com, and believe me when I say they're just the tip of the iceberg of all the great content and tools you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, long shot suggestions in the speculator column, there's team injury reports and player injury analysis in the big hurt column, gaming strategy analysis for rotisserie, points leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats, and we have groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, there are tools like the player projections updated every day, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete PQS logs for pitchers, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up, you get expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. PD here. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. Coming up, we have the frequent flyer and my extra innings comment. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here, with a look at some top Orioles prospects, is Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon. After a week's hiatus due to COVID, this week's Minor League Minute is back and ready to help identify some intriguing prospects you should be prepared to pounce upon once they reach the majors. Not to toot our own horn too much, but previously the Minor League Minute alerted you to high-impact prospects such as Brett Batty, Yuri Perez, Matt McClain, and Brandon Fott. This week we take a look at some of the Orioles' top offensive prospects who are definitely ready for the majors, but unfortunately don't have a clear path to playing time unless someone at the major league level hits the IL. The Orioles' farm system is arguably the deepest and most talented system in baseball, and this week when Jim Callis and Jonathan Mayo from MLB Pipeline 
updated their top 100 prospect list, the Orioles had a staggering eight prospects on the list, and that didn't include Gunnar Henderson or Adley Rutschman. On the mound, the Orioles have already called up both Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall, though Hall was just up for a spot start. But it's really at the plate that the Orioles' depth stands out, with three players worth keeping an eye on. Outfielders Colton Kowser, Heston Kierstad, and infielder Jordan Westberg. Kowser was the fifth overall pick in the 2021 draft after a three-year career at Sam Houston State, and he has done nothing but hit since turning pro. At 6'3", 220, Kowser has a quick left-handed stroke and above-average raw power, and while he does have some swing and miss to his game, he also draws plenty of walks and has at least average speed. On the year, the 23-year-old Kowser is hitting 311 with a 469 on base percentage and a 554 slug with 8 doubles, 7 home runs, and 35 walks and 139 at-bats, and now owns a career OPS of 919. While Kowser has always drawn a lot of attention, teammate Jordan Westberg continues to fly under the radar. Westberg was the 30th overall pick in the Coven Short in 2020 draft and has spent much of his pro career at short, but with Gunnar Henderson and Jorge Mateo locked in at short and third base at the majors, look for the Orioles to use Westberg in a utility role once he's ready. And he might be ready fairly soon. On the year, the 24-year-old Westberg is slashing 313 with a 385 on base and a 625 slug with 12 home runs and just 144 at-bats. Westberg blasted a career-high 27 long balls last year, and that uptick in power could give him tremendous value in AL-only formats. Finally, the Orioles' other first-round pick in 2020, Heston Kierstad, who was the second overall pick in the draft that year, has taken longer to develop after missing almost two full years of action with heart inflammation, which may have been caused by COVID, though Kierstad never tested positive. Regardless, the 24-year-old left-handed hitter was one of the more dynamic players in the Arizona Fall League last year, and year-to-date is hitting 297 with a 381 on base percentage and an impressive 620 slugging percentage with 9 home runs and 118 at-bats for AA Bowie. With the Orioles sporting an impressive 28-16 record, they don't really have a glaring need on offense. So Kowser, Westberg, and Kierstad will have to wait for an opening. But injuries happen all the time, and if you play in a league with reserved roster spots, this trio of Orioles prospects has some pretty exciting offensive upside and could help turn your season around if they can find their way into regular playing time in the majors. For Baseball HQ Radio, this was Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon has his Minor League Minute report regularly here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for the Frequent Flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. Here with a look at Minnesota shortstop Royce Lewis is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. He has raw tools that make evaluators drool, according to Baseball HQ's Brad Coleman, two years ago as February 9, 2021 Keepers Column on BaseballHQ.com. Worth noting, in the same 2021 Keepers Column that featured future stars Wander Franco and Bobby Wynn, among others, Brad surmised that of all the high-profile shortstop prospects, Royce Lewis presents far and away the most high-risk Keeper League investment. Taking stock of the current situation, Baseball HQ's 2023 Minor League Baseball Analyst calls soon-to-be 24-year-old Minnesota Twins shortstop Royce Lewis an exceptional athlete who can't stay healthy. Perhaps this is a common viewpoint among many analysts, especially after two torn ACLs of the same knee, his right knee, each requiring a year of rehab. 
Factor in the pandemic loss of minor league baseball games in 2020, and as Baseball HQ's 2023 baseball forecaster pointed out, Lewis hasn't been on the actual baseball field much. Understatement. That's why 23-year-old Minnesota Twins shortstop Royce Lewis, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be an understated long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. But he might not be available for long, here's why. Lewis, already at AAA St. Paul, had a 422-foot home run and three steals to his credit in only 14 at-bats in 2023. Plus, the Twins appear to have an opening at third base. Jose Miranda was demoted. Nick Gordon is a fractured shin. Jorge Polanco might reportedly have strained his hamstring, unknown at this point, perhaps requiring Kyle Farmer to cover second more often. In other words, a perfect storm? Maybe. Additionally, according to the Minneapolis Star Tribune's Phil Miller on May 16th, Lewis's agent, Scott Boris, said he is encouraged the Twins are limiting Lewis to shortstop and third base and not returning him to the outfield where the latest injury occurred. So why is that statement from Scott Boris significant? On occasion, understatement, Scott Boris's quotes can sometimes influence, understatement, playing time. It sounds like Scott Boris would like to see, or plans to see, however you wish to view it, his client, Royce Lewis, at either shortstop or third base, not outfield. So how does that affect Carlos Correa's playing time at shortstop? Well, reportedly, Correa is also a client of Scott Boris, according to Phil Miller, and the trade deadline is fast approaching. And occasionally, understatement, Scott Boris is active at the trade deadline. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that either player will be traded. However, with the Twins reportedly needing to make a decision on activating Lewis by June 1st, maybe you too should make a decision, understatement, on activating or acquiring 23-year-old Minnesota Twins shortstop Royce Lewis as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about some opportunities in St. Louis. I don't know if you've noticed, but the Cardinals seem to be back. St. Louis was on an almighty skid to start the year. Well, they were in first place in the National League Central after three games, and then they started falling. They were third after the fourth game, fourth after the fifth game, and last after the sixth game. They've stayed in the cellar pretty much ever since, with occasional forays into fourth. The long slide began with kind of a listlessness. From Game 5, which started with the team at 500, through Game 26, the cards went 8 and 14. They'd win one, they'd lose one, they'd win one, they'd lose two, that kind of thing. There was no momentum. Then, starting at Game 27, there was momentum of the kind you get when there's a boulder rolling down a hill towards your house, or when you step into an elevator not realizing the car isn't there. Eight straight in the L column brought the team to its nadir, and that's the term medieval Latin speakers use to describe the A's. The Cardinals were 10-24 and 24 over that stretch, a 294 winning percentage. The nadir actually happened in Detroit, where good teams usually go to work towards their zenith, which was more or less the term those medieval Latin speakers use to describe their console model color TVs. Instead of winning, St. Louis lost two straight in Detroit, but then the turnaround began. 
St. Louis won that third game against the Tigers, starting a run of nine wins in 11 games, bringing the team back to 19-26 and 26 for the season, still just a 422 winning percentage, but a 128-point improvement over the nadir. Still, things aren't all rosy. The Cards are still dead last in the National League Central, six back of the front-running Milwaukee Brewers. Six games back doesn't sound all that bad, but if Milwaukee keeps playing at its current 558 clip, St. Louis is going to have to go 71 and 46 the rest of the way. That's a 607 rate just to tie the Brewers. If Milwaukee should happen to slide to 500, the Cards will still need to win at about a 555 percentage to get into a tie with the Brewers. Now that's not impossible. For one thing, amazing as it might seem considering their record, the Cardinals are outscoring their opponents overall by about 0.4 runs per game. At home, they're almost 0.8 runs per game better, and away they're about even. They have what it takes to score enough runs to win. But to get into a more consistent winning mode, the Cards will have to focus on improving in three areas. First, they'll have to do better at home. Though, as noted, they're outscoring their opponents at home, the team is 9-14, and that's a 391 win percentage, while they're beating around the Bush Stadium. That eight-game losing streak, five of those games were at home. Second, they'll need better production from their outfield. According to BaseballReference.com's wins above average by position metric, which counts hitting and fielding, the St. Louis outfield is 29th out of the 30 major league teams. The only team worse is Kansas City. And remember, Kansas City plays Jackie Bradley Jr. in his 447 OPS and Nate Eaton's 177 OPS out in their outfield. The thing is, St. Louis has good outfielders, but the managers, coaches, and front office deciding who gets the playing time out there have turned it into a clown car. Third, they have to be better in close games. The Cards have played 10 one-run games this season, and they've lost eight. Good teams win those close games. And of the three points, here's point four, a bonus if you will. They have to get better clutch performances from the bullpen, especially from the Clydesdales out there, or in the corral or wherever they are. Nine of their 26 losses so far have been charged to relievers. In particular, closer Ryan Helsley has two losses, setup guy and former closer Jordan Hicks has three losses, Former closer and setup guy Giovanni Gallegos has two losses, and some guy called Thompson has two losses. Five of those nine relief losses were in those close games. As I said, a good team wins close games, and they do it in part because they have reliable relievers for those tight spots. Now you might wonder how all this applies to fantasy. Well, I'm one of those who believes your fantasy rosters are better off with players on winning teams. That was one reason I snabbed Nolan Arenado in one league at the 2-3 turn. For a while, it didn't look that good. Arenado was culprit number one for St. Louis's struggles until he found Wonderbat around the end of that losing skid. In the 10 games and 46 plate appearances since then, he slashed 333, 370, 810 for his slugging, 1180 OPS, six homers, 17 RBIs, nine runs scored, and even his second stolen base of the season. So, I think the Cardinals are a lot better than they've played, which by some kind of logic means we should be playing our cards close to the vest. 
For BaseballHQ.com, I'm Patrick Davitt, and I have my extra innings commentary here on Baseball HQ Radio almost every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 19th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 17 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Mike Curland, from Gaining the Edge, The Athletic, and the Bases Loaded podcast. Mike is a very thorough analyst with a firm grasp of lineup analysis and a lot of energy in everything that he does. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analyst was Chris Olson. Our Minor League Minute commentator was Baseball HQ scouting team member Rob Gordon. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep this podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, please let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring another expert interview and all the usual great news analysis and Baseball HQ commentaries. Be sure to join us for another Friday full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk with you again next Friday. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.